I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Can't wait for this next guest, Bionic. This should be a fascinating show, Mm -hmm. and I think our listeners are going to find this to be one that they won't forget. It'll give them a lot of uh, Mm -hmm. thought-provoking issues to deal with, Mm -hmm. but also it's one that they should share with all of their Christian friends Mm -hmm. and talk about, I think, in the entire show. Uh, we have a very special guest, one of our most esteemed guests we have on Future Quake. He's actually a return visitor. Mm-hmm. We have Joseph Farah, who is the founder and editor-in-chief of WorldNet Daily, which is the largest Internet news source in the world. And really? Christian, yes, I had no idea yes, it was that Christian, big. Uh, all of your big names in conservative and Christian writing, all of them are columnists, basically, at WorldNet mm-hmm. Daily. And um, it Chuck is Baldwin? Not Chuck Baldwin. No. He's with News Refuse, but... Uh, it, and, and Chuck, to be honest, is sort of small compared, and following compared yeah. to the people that, that he has wow. uh, on there. Uh, and uh, he is a heavy hitter in our community and the world. I mean, he is very influential in opinion amongst the Christian community. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the the co-speaker at the Tea Party National Convention alongside Sarah Palin. Wow. Okay. He was the one asked alongside her. And because of that critical role he has, he wrote a book. It's a little small book. It's just released called The Tea Party Manifesto, A Vision for American Rebirth. And it's available anywhere. It's a, it's a small, quick read. It's his vision, and I think he sees himself in his position as a visionary for the Christian community. Hmm. Uh, he's been a maverick in the past, took a lot of heat for... Uh, uh, his book, None of the Above, about not getting in line behind McCain. Yeah, I remember that. I, I give him big props for yeah, that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, we talk about the challenges of the Tea Party, uh, some of his issues that he brings up, mm-hmm. and also even some of the language. And some of this ties back not only to the Tea Party, but issues we've talked about on Future Quake mm-hmm. about religious language being used in the context of political issues. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, it was a fascinating discussion. Uh, I did, too. And we'll have a little time to cover it when we come back. So here is our first segment. Again, there will only be three segments this week in the one-hour interview, Monday through Wednesday. But here's our first segment with Joseph Farah, uh, pastor and, or founder and editor of WorldNet Daily and author of the Tea Party Manifesto, talking about the Tea Party at a crossroads, how to pursue what America really needs. And then we'll be back to discuss it here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Really excited to have our next guest here, Bionic. Uh, so am I. In fact, uh, it's a return visit. Uh, we, we typically don't go for the same guest mm-hmm. uh, frequently on our show. We mm-hmm. keep fresh blood in. But uh, some of our more prominent members, particularly when they have something new to contribute, new workout, mm-hmm. uh, which is the case today, uh, we like to have them back. And uh, we're, we're having back uh, Mr. Joseph Farah, who is the founder and editor of WorldNet Daily, uh, which many of you all are familiar with, and also the author of a new book out called The Tea Party Manifesto, A Vision for an American Rebirth. And we're going to be talking this week about the Tea Party at a Crossroads, uh, how to pursue what America really needs. And I just want to say, Mr. Farrah, I want to welcome you back for a return visit to the Future Quake radio program. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you, gentlemen. 
Well, it's it's a pleasure to have you. I know your schedule is extremely busy, and I uh, just appreciate you making time for our humble show to uh, come back with us here at Future Quake. Uh, I will dispense with our normal uh, time spent asking you about your background, uh, which our listeners can review if they desire by listening to your earlier visit with us in our audio archives at futurequake.com. Uh, I will summarize your credentials, and please, uh, Mr. Farrah, correct me if I state anything erroneously. Uh, but I'd like to point out that you were the editor of major national newspapers in the United States for almost a decade, and in 1997 founded and now serve as the CEO and editor-in-chief of WorldNet Daily, considered the world's leading independent Internet news source, with a plethora of well-known regular columnists from every stripe in the political spectrum, but with an overall editorial atmosphere that is supportive of a patriotic evangelical Christian worldview. Uh, he is an author of a number of popular books on politics, civics, and social culture, and co-headlined the first National Tea Party Convention here in Nashville this past year as a keynote speaker alongside Sarah Palin. And speaking of the Tea Party movement, uh, your visit today, as I've said, is uh, sparked by your release of this new book out, uh, The Tea Party Manifesto, uh, which is now available for sale, as I understand it, this month. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this new book, uh, which outlines your vision for how a burgeoning Tea Party movement can mature into a type of constructive and lasting influence for good in our society, can you state uh, what you say on your first two pages in Chapter 1 of your book uh, that the rank-and-file Tea Party members now understand as far as two fundamental aspects of the current problems facing America? Uh, you state that up front in your book uh, that's, that's common knowledge among the, the Tea Partiers. Can you explain what they are and what evidence you have to suggest that they consistently agree? Uh, everyone in this group does as who the culprits really are by the consensus in their group. Well, I think I um, know what you're talking about. <laughs> you should read. You should read this book. It's great. I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a little small, but it's good big print for guys like me who need to bifocals. Well, I, I I got a lot of it memorized, but uh, if you're talking about the the, the two kind of foundational statements that I think are, you know, what, I, what I'm suggesting to be the mission statement for the Tea Party. Is that what you're referring to? Well, that's right. Would you like me to refresh your memory like they say on the witness stand? No, no, uh, no. I, 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 I can handle it. Okay. I can handle it. Lay it on me. <laughs> Basically, what I'm telling um, the Tea Party activists, uh, and let me put this in a little bit of context first. There are a lot of folks from both inside the Tea Party movement and outside who are, are given advice, who are, in, in my opinion, uh, trying to dictate the, the, the rules of engagement, if you will, sure. to what the Tea Party should be doing, what they should be talking about, what issues are of relevance to them. And um, <clears throat> that's the major reason I wrote this book, was because I think when you have a beautiful, uh, potent, uh, grassroots, spontaneous uh, political movement like this, you don't try to put it in a box. What you try to do is, you know, you got a raging prairie fire going here that's burning up a lot of garbage. You throw gasoline on it mm-hmm. and you say, burn, baby, burn. Mm-hmm. And so this book was, you know, my effort to try to give the Tea Party uh, permission, if you will, or, or the blessing to pursue what they really believe in. And and I've had the pleasure of meeting hundreds and hundreds of Tea Party activists all over the country. And so I think I got a pretty good idea of what's in the heart and the soul 
of these folks. Well, I hate to tell you this, Mr. Farrow, but I just heard on the news today that that they're supposedly racist. That was the headline (laughs) on the news. We'll get to that. Okay. Well, I just I wanted to warn you about that. Yeah. That was the new word on the street. <laughs> yeah, I had a chance to debate that on Hannity today, as a matter of fact. But right. the, the, the point is that rather than constrain this movement, what we want to do is we want, to, want, to, we want them to, to follow the course they're on. And, I, you know, when I talk to Tea Party activists, what I hear are folks who are inspired by the founders, they revere the Declaration of Independence, they uphold and, uh, the Constitution, and they understand that we have something very, you know, something unique in this country, the rule of law, the will of the people, self-government. They really believe in that stuff, mm-hmm. which, you know, unfortunately, uh, many members of the elite establishment media and other institutions, political institutions in this country, you know, they think that stuff's a joke. Right. They think that stuff's archaic. They think that stuff is obsolete. And, you know, so when Tea Party members talk about taking America back, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about getting back to the, the original vision, getting back to the rule of law. And so, you know, that encompasses a lot. And uh, and And so what I suggest are the, you know, binding principles, the the defining principles of this movement is basically that like, you know, they're the founders, they believe, and I'm with them, we believe that we are accountable to a sovereign God who grants us unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And like our founders, we believe the Constitution strictly limits the power of the federal government and uniquely recognizes and protects those on inalienable right, individual rights. That's what I suggest should be um, the mission statement, if you will, for the Tea Party movement, or something like it. You know, these are these are my words. I tried to keep the words uh, as close to what the founders actually uh, wrote. Um, how can we improve upon that today in 2010? That's really the question, and. Um, you know, you've got a lot of folks, uh, even inside the Tea Party movement, who are trying to tell them, you know what, you, you should only stick to economic issues. Mm-hmm. You should only talk about tax cutting and debt and, and all these things. And what I say to that is, you, you, in order for you to believe that you can fix the fundamental problems we have in America through economics then you have to believe that the fundamental problems we have in America are materialistic at root. And I don't believe that, and I don't believe most Tea Party members believe that. Mm -hmm. Well, you actually say in your book uh, that the Tea Party needs to, quote, revive liberty, restore social justice, and jumpstart a moral renewal. Uh, What are some specific examples of how they can accomplish each of these three? And what should be the highest uh, priority-specific issues they should address within each one of those three? Well, <clears throat> you know, to, to, I wrote a book back in 2003 called Taking America Back, where I think they addressed a lot of, of those kinds of those kinds of questions in greater detail than I do in this book. This is a little book, <clears throat> you know. It's meant to be a uh, a quick read. It's meant to be, you know, very easily accessible. It's inexpensive. I wanted 
a lot of people to see it. But back in 2003, I wrote a book <clears throat> that was more conventional and called Taking America Back. And I, you know, I, I, what I did was diagnose the, the fundamental problems we face. And, you know, I think that the, you know, you want to start with number one. I think that the, the number one problem we have, and typically this is true in any, with any country, any society that has problems, it usually starts with this one. And that is people forget about God. They walk away from God. And, you know, if we need a historical review of that, that's pretty much what the Bible is all about. <laughs> people walk away from God. They turn back to God. They're blessed when they turn back. They're cursed when they walk away. Uh, is there any doubt in anybody's mind listening to this show today that, you know, we have walked away from God over the last 50 years in particular, but, you know, you can you can almost see it accelerated uh the the uh you know in in recent years and that causes all kinds of problems it causes you know where people are unable to discern right from wrong well that leaves big problems because if god is not your sovereign and you're not accountable as an individual to uh, a sovereign god then you need government to be your policeman, to be your big daddy, to be your mommy, to tell you what to do, to tell you where to go, uh, you know, what job you should have or whether you should have a job at all. It, it, that's really fundamentally our choice uh, as individuals. Do we want to be accountable to God and live as self-governing individuals or would we rather have tyrants tell us, <laughs> you know, what to do every day? And there's no question in my mind either that we're moving away from, you know, being self-governing individuals toward a more uh, tyrannical society. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, what the Tea Party movement is all about is recognizing that and saying, you know what, we're, we're headed in the wrong direction. Let's go back. And uh, so, you know, how do we do that? Step number one, and, I, and this is true in my uh, Taking mm -hmm. America Back book, is get down on your knees and repent and uh and get back to you know God's word and God's laws and and, uh, and you know if we only follow num the number one prescription we're gonna, mm -hmm. we're going to be a lot better off let me tell you now you just speaking to the christian citizens of america or non-christians as well too with that guidance well i think that christians understand what i'm saying uh you know better than most others. I think that a lot of Orthodox Jews can recognize what I'm saying, and and, uh, and it, it's uh, it's a blessing to them, too, uh, because they they have that historical background, and they, you know, they understand what we're talking about. But, mm -hmm. you know, in our hearts, every single person listening to us right now, I don't care what your your faith is or whether you have any faith at all, I'm I'm telling you that I believe every single person that is hearing me right now is being convicted by my words. Mm -hmm. What about the term restore social justice? Were there any specific actions that you thought or issues in, in support of that that you recommend be pursued? Well, I mean, I think you can start with one really obvious one. We've gone so far off the track 
in America today that, you know, you, you, it's hard. We're bombarded with social injustice, you know. But let's talk about one that just stands out in my mind. Um, what's the most innocent form of human life that you can think of? It would certainly be the unborn. Yeah, a baby in, in the womb. Mm-hmm. And yet today in America, what is it, one out of four or one out of three uh, babies are aborted? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, wow. it's incredible to, to put right. that in, uh, in in perspective. You're not even safe in your mother's womb. That is the ultimate injustice, isn't it? Not to even, you know, have a right to be born right. and have that first breath of life. Um, now, I would presume that most of the people currently involved in the Tea Party are on board with the pro-life position, which rightfully they should be. Are there yeah. any other social justice issues that you think should be a priority for them? Well, again, what I talk about in the Tea Party Manifesto is not to not to tread too heavily into every issue. One of the mistakes I think you know uh, conservatives make, and they make many, uh, you know, and I'm talking about the more conventional conservative movement, establishment conservatives, whatever you want to call them, uh, is that they, you know, they kind of, um, they kind of create this laundry list of what you believe in. And if you don't believe in this, then you're not this. And, and if you cross this bridge, you know, um, one of the things, one of the reasons I like what the founders did in the Declaration of Independence is they came up with this broad, very attractive, very compelling mission statement that we had talked about earlier. And then they addressed their, their grievances with, with the crown. And, you know, I, I think that's the way to do it. Uh, and I, you know, I, nobody better at coming up with grievances than me. I mean, I, there's, there, I think there's a, a very good place for that. Um, when you just start delineating issues and where where you stand on issues, um, I, I, t- I think that does not help uh, build consensus. Okay, so talk there's about no specific. The grievance okay. and talk about the solution. Talk, okay. you know, I mean, I could look. One of my grievances, I, I have no problems with talking about them, and I have no problems talking mm-hmm. about any issue under the sun. But what I'm addressing is what should this big, you know millions you know, tens of millions strong mm-hmm. movement do and uh and so you know as for me i can point to a social justice issue that i think is very important uh and that is uh you know the institution the family is mm-hmm. under attack and it's under attack largely by people who want to completely redefine it they want to redefine you know marriage uh even even you know what defines a family? Whether you, you know, who can adopt? Who's mm-hmm. all kinds of crazy things that have to do with, you know, sexual preference is now equated with uh, something immutable like the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. So if I decide that, you know, I'm hiring people into my business, and a guy comes walking in, and he's wearing a dress, let's say. 
I don't have the right to dismiss this guy from my office and say, listen, you're, you're not right for the position mm-hmm. uh, in this company anymore. I mean, that's where we are in America today. It's unbelievable. You would refer to that as a social justice issue like you were talking about here. Absolutely. Um, you also say in your book that, quote, the American dream is under spiritual attack, unquote. Can you define for us what the American dream is and why you see it as a spiritual entity that God endorses and Satan opposes? And why, from a biblical understanding, would it be under a spiritual attack? And how you defend the American dream in the spiritual realm, as you suggest? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, to, uh, I think we sort of covered that because I think the American dream starts with the Declaration of Independence. It's with the idea that we have a creator who's, you know, endowed us with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I don't think that says it all, but I think that's the foundation of the American dream. It means that, you know, each of us as individuals has a right to life. Isn't that interesting? It's right there in the Declaration of Independence. Um, we have a, a right to liberty, and we have a right to pursue our dreams. That's what the pursuit of happiness is. A lot of people want to turn that into purely economics, but it's much more than that. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in essence, what that meant to the founders is that we have the right to be self-governing individuals and not be dictated to by, you know, government and, and, and micromanaged by government. Um, and that dream, I mean, if that isn't uh, obvious to everybody listening, how that's under attack, I think it's you can, you know, you can scarcely not see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I'm not just talking about Obama. I'm really not. I think that Obama, here's the way I explain Obama. In 2008, I wrote a book called None of the Above, where I said, you know, don't, right. don't vote for either one of these major party candidates because they're both going to take us essentially in the same direction we're headed in the wrong direction as a country. One is going to take you there more slowly. The other one is going to take you on the fast road. And um, I, I even made the point that in some ways it's better to let the ones, it'd be wrong to vote for them, mm-hmm. but don't fear that the, the one who's taking us on the fast road is going to destroy us. He might actually represent our best chance for reversing course because a lot of people are going to wake up when he takes office and he does what he's promising to do. A lot of people are going to awaken from their slumber. They're going to get out into the streets. Uh, ordinary, hardworking people who have never protested anything before in their lives are going to do that. I predicted the Tea Party movement would arise. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened, giving us an opportunity to reverse course, not to mm-hmm. slow down, but to actually reverse course head back in the right direction and that's what i think the tea party movement is all about but you see the american dream as a spiritual issue that's under spiritual attack everything's spiritual to me okay okay (laughs) you know i i think see as opposed to the materialists which may represent you know the materialists may represent uh, an awful lot of people in this Mm -hmm. country uh that's not to say that we still don't have a you know, significant majority who believe in God, but it's a, it's a, an amorphous God to many of them, and 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 so fundamentally we have this rise of materialism. But you know, I I look at our world and I and I understand that there's a material aspect to it, but the 
the spiritual is more important. <laughs> uh, it's the reason we're here. Uh, we can't see it, smell it, touch it, and so forth, but it's real. And not to acknowledge that it's real is 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 just almost, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't even want to live in the physical world if that's all there was. What would mm-hmm. be the point of it all? Mm-hmm. And and I think that that feeling is, you know, is is real among a lot of people who have been conditioned to being materialists. I think when we see teenage kids killing themselves and we see, you know, all this, you know, terrible violence and gang activity and so what why do people think that happens? I mean, mm-hmm. it's because these folks don't have any sense of of purpose in their lives and they don't have any sense of accountability to a higher being. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future and Tom. That was interesting. Bionic well, this is an interview, like I said, I think people need to listen to several times mm-hmm. and, and then go listen to with other Christians and talk about it and debate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some language he uses in his, in his uh, book that I asked him about. And one of the three things, as I mentioned, that, that he said are needed is to restore social justice. Mm-hmm. And when I asked him about it, he mentioned abortion, which obviously sure. churches yeah, rightfully support. Babies are rightfully aborted. support. That blew me away. But I asked for anything else on social justice, and never I don't think I ever really heard another issue. He did say that it wasn't good for Christians or groups like this to get too detailed in issues, mm-hmm. which I would think would handicap their ability to be effective if they don't yeah. get their arms around issues. Um, you know, he's talked about broad, broad areas, but it comes mm-hmm. down, you finally have to have policy on specific issues. And, and it's one thing to say you support social justice, but unless you put specific issues on the table, I don't know. And I really think that's an issue of the American church today, hmm. evangelical church. The evangelical church, what emphasis beyond abortion do they put in social justice? I, I agree with him. It's important, but but really, what what are we known for in terms of leading the banner of social justice? Or do leading we cons- the poor? Well, there's some of that, certainly. Yeah. There's things like that, but um, it's not something that's a major emphasis in the evangelical community. You don't see a lot of fevered articles written in Christian media about it or things like this. Um, yeah, that's true. That it's considered to be a liberal trait. It's actually a liberal trait to be concerned about those kind of issues. Uh, and so the, the church, I think, except for people on a local level and some special ministries like Samaritan's Purse and things like that, mm-hmm. as far as the, the movers and shakers and Christian leadership, it's not something they put a big premium on. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for example, the uh, people who are incarcerated in our country without uh, recourse. You know that are that are unjustly. Mm-hmm. Do you hear a lot of it in Christian media about being concerned about that? God hates it. God talks about it in Scripture that He hates it. Sure. Do you hear anything about it? And I think this is sort of indicative in our discussion. The other thing he mentions in his book was the American dream is under spiritual attack. Now, yeah, that I didn't. I wasn't entirely clear on that. I don't know about you, but to me that is a classic example of mixing a secular issue and spiritualizing and making a spiritual issue. Mm -hmm. As we've discussed before, the American dream is largely understood to be mostly a materialistic dream. It's a freedom dream. It's a freedom of sex actualization, be yourself. But usually it means having your own plot of ground, your own home, your own self-destiny, and usually economic uh, purposes. Because nobody can stop us between our ears spiritually, the spiritual dream that we have. Unless your name is 
Easterbrook. Well, that's true. Yeah. That's another threat we have. Yeah. Uh, another threat is Merv, who can come tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. All right, let's get out of here. Come back for the next segment tomorrow with Joseph Fair. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Uh, very interested in this interview. Bionic. At least it wasn't like question mark, question mark. I, I like these mental names better. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. When there's something in the interview where I'm just not sure, but I don't feel comfortable talking about it, yeah. the middle name ends up being question mark sometimes. Well, I'll use that as a, a key next time, yeah. maybe interpretation. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've been interviewing this week a, arguably one of the most influential person in American Christian circles today, uh, someone who's using the center of activities. More of, influential than Billy Graham? Uh, Billy Graham's not as influential right now, you know, in his current wow. physical state and, and even his ministry. I think Franklin Graham, if anything, was probably supplying Now, there is a legacy of influence from the Billy Graham mm. ministry, I think. Uh, but this gentleman really is at the forefront of being with the movers and shakers and in the center wow. of the vision and activities of the Christian community in terms of um, political issues, in terms of national issues, mm-hmm. uh, and his website. We're talking about Joseph Farah, the founder and editor-in-chief of WorldNet Daily, mm-hmm. uh, the most popular place for Internet news. Uh, the, I was I was surprised, and I congratulate him for being, what was it, the number one independent media? That's how they advertise, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the Internet. And uh, almost all of your big-name figures in the conservative Christian area, your largest people, are regular columnists there. Mm-hmm. It, it is really the main portal, main street, for the mm-hmm. conservative Christian community. And as I mentioned yesterday, he was asked to be a, a co-speaker alongside Sarah Palin mm-hmm. at the National Tea Party Convention, and he's been involved with that from the very beginning, and hence the book he wrote, The Tea Party Manifesto, A Vision for American Rebirth, which has just come out, mm-hmm. and we discussed that on this show. We pick up right in the middle of our discussion, and um, let's go on to Mr. Farah, and then we'll come back and discuss it further here at Future Quick. Now, one point that you make uh, very important in, in your book and, and stress is that uh, you talk about um, societal issues, how everything is a societal issue. Yeah, that's uh, very important. How do you justify, quote, moral societal issues like abortion and gay marriage and the, quote, economic issues like taxes and spending being joined together under the umbrella of social issues, right. I think is how yeah, you, you is, phrase. Is a, how do you put those together, and what reference do you use to justify marrying the two of those it, together? It's a real curveball for a lot of folks, and and it, it may be a little hard to follow, so you got to listen to this carefully. Um, one of the things I hate is when I have to debate on somebody else's rules, and they get to frame the debate, 
and they get to pick the terminology that we can use. And, mm-hmm. and you know, right off the bat, you've lost the debate. It's all over. Right. And that is essentially what we have allowed the elitists in this country to do, elitists in the media and political establishment. They, they, they use these words, and we adopt them. Like we, and you know, some of the words they use is social issues and economic issues. There's this divide uh, that they've created between social issues and economic. So I like to take the words apart. What does social issues actually mean? Social means people, so we're talking about people issues. Economics means, well, obviously something related to economics, but doesn't everything belong? Is there an issue that you can think of a political issue that doesn't involve people? Uh, isn't aren't taxes and economics just as you know dealing just as much with people and people's concerns and people's lives than abortion? And <laughs> for the life of me, I can't figure out what people mean. So then, sometimes people will drop that if I insist upon. It. They'll talk about moral issues. As opposed to social issues, and I say, well, wait a minute, isn't everything a moral issue? I mean, when we decide to tax people at different rates and things like that, and uh, increase their taxes, lower their taxes, aren't we making moral judgments? I mean, fundamentally, don't isn't everything we do in politics based on somebody's idea of morality? And I have to say, yes. Yeah. So again. Where is the divide in the, in these issues? Well, what are people really talking about? And so after thinking about this and diagnosing this, I come up with what they really mean by economics is materialism. They don't want to call themselves materialists because especially when you're debating and, and let's say you're a conservative, you're, a, you're an economic conservative. What does that mean? Well, I guess it means to the... Uh, economic conservative that he thinks or she thinks that fundamentally the root of our problems are economics and that we can address those fundamental problems with purely economic and material solutions. That's not what people on the right are supposed to believe. Mm -hmm. That's not what uh, Christians Mm -hmm. are supposed to believe or Jews we we are supposed to believe that um you know materialism is just part of the the picture it's, it's you know what we see but it's not who we are and so you know I, I can understand that when somebody on the left gives you materialistic solutions this is karl marx and engels mm-hmm. and it's out of their book but why is it i try to understand when dick army or somebody like that says, you know what, we we got to avoid these messy social issues and we got to stick to economics. What mm-hmm. what is that good for? Mm-hmm. How does that solve our problems? Why 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 should we play those by those rules? Do right. the people on the left play by those rules? Absolutely not. Everything is a moral issue to them. Uh splitting up families, ending mm-hmm. marriage, it's all on their agenda. Why is it that we're not supposed to, we're supposed to hide our eyes from those? Well, you know, um, I, I certainly believe in minimal taxes, and I very much believe in a minimal federal government. 
Um, but I, when I when I was reading that, it made me think of some Christian gatherings I'm aware of, where large groups of people have come around the country to gather for prayer, just Christians about the moral uh, condition of our country and to pray for uh, you know moral uh, upbringing. And and a lot of times they'll work in the issues of taxes or cap and trade or oil drilling as part of the prayers that they're going forth to God to uh, see that he would address about, you know, drilling in Alaska or the Gulf or things like this. And, and I certainly have strong positions on that that would probably be deemed conservative, but I never really saw that on the same level in approaching God as, say, the, the, the spiritual condition, you know, of, of our of our people. Well, we should because there's more in the Bible about money and property than almost anything else. I mean, God addresses it. God's given us this 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 uh, playbook for economics. The Bible defines private property. Uh, you know, it, it's a sin to steal, and th- there's a reason for that. I mean, it's not just because God doesn't like stealing. I think you can we can see the the problems it creates in society uh, apart from the commandment, and it's why the most secular societies in the world have had, uh, you know, laws against stealing. Um, so, <clears throat> but, you know, there are many people in this in this country of ours today who fundamentally don't really have any respect for private property. That's what socialism is about. Um, you know, redistribution of the wealth, uh, you know, all these buzzwords that they use. And so, if God is telling us, um, you know, uh, if he's giving us lessons about economics, which I think are very clear uh, throughout the Bible, I think we ought to pay attention to them just like we should pay attention to what he says about marriage. Okay. But you know what? You mentioned later in your book, you said uh, we need to take back America's soul. And I was just wondering, how do we take back America's soul? Um, and you know, making it of paramount importance. In that process, how do we deal with fellow loyal Americans who do not share our covenantal commitments to God? Where, where do they the fall in that way, process? Yeah, I would say the same way that, you know, our forefathers did, the pilgrims, the Puritans. You know, I'm just reading about the history of this country leading up to the War of Independence and how all of the various colonies, you know, were started by by somebody who had an idea about, you know, a, a specific theological idea. You know, he starts with the pilgrims landing at uh, Plymouth Rock. Now, the pilgrims were in a minority even on the Mayflower, but they didn't persecute uh, the <laughs> the non-believers who came with them. Then the, the, you have the Puritans who, who, you know, the Puritan migration that follows that, and uh, and... You know, we have this. You know, in America today, in school, you'll you'll learn how these people were intolerant and bigoted and and whatnot. But they had lots of non-believers among them, and you know, as long as they didn't break the laws, uh, they were they were tolerated. But then you had you know, you had uh, Rhode Island and Pennsylvania, you had Quakers, you had all these different people coming in, Baptists and Catholics in Maryland and. Uh, the idea was that, you know, let people live by their own belief system. It all works pretty well. Uh, In fact, you know, Maryland that was started as a Catholic uh, community actually very quickly became a Protestant 
community uh, because it was so tolerant. And, and this happened all over the, the 13 colonies, and it, and it carried into the founders' vision for what is, in essence, a, a society that, you know, believes that people have the right to uh, believe as, you know, they want. Uh, and, um, I, you know, I think that their idea was that we've got, you know, we have all these colonies and, and it's going to be up to them. Some of them have official state faiths, but even those that did tolerated people of different faiths pretty well. There was very, very little. I mean, this was the reason, the primary reason that people came to colonial America was was because they were fleeing religious persecution. Mm-hmm. And so we have to always be conscious of that. Mm-hmm. We don't uh, impose our faith on anybody mm-hmm. else. But that doesn't mean that we can't have rules that we ask other people who want to live with us to follow. I mean, that's we have rules against murder. We have rules against mm-hmm. stealing. We have rules. You know, you look at the Ten Commandments. We had all those rules. Those were all translated into law uh, in colonial America. And we did all right for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, as a Christian, uh, you make a clear point in your book that the process of taking back America's soul is a, a process that a Christian would understand. You know, a Christian approach back to God and and the, the worldview that that Christ gives us through Scripture. And of course, we're both Christians here uh, and, and agree with that worldview. But is taking back an America's soul is that a political process? No. Uh, hardly. Politics is first aid. That's all politics should ever be thought of. You know, this is an emergency prescription. It's a chance we get every, you know, couple of years to go to the polls and, and pick leaders. But as I say in my book, Taking America Back, there are decisions that we make every single day in our lives that are far more important than, than the decisions we make on election day. Decisions about, uh, you know, who we marry, why we get married, uh, children, where, where you're gonna send your children for, to be educated. Are you gonna, are you gonna send them to the government to educate or are you gonna do it yourself? Or are you gonna find somebody else to, uh, you know, all these decisions, cultural decisions, what you watch on television, what you, you do when you're on your computer, uh, what newspapers you buy. I mean, literally everything to me is uh, in part a moral decision, and, and those are important decisions that impact not just you in your house, but your neighbors, your you know, people mm-hmm. all across the country. And so, you know, we have to start thinking like responsible moral people about those decisions that we make. And So what would know, be the process that the Tea Party people would take back America's soul? What would be their process to do that? Well, one, the, the, the beautiful thing that the Tea Party represents is our people sort of collectively, spontaneously getting up and making their voice heard. Now, obviously, they're making their voice heard uh, when they march on Washington or, or champion political candidates uh, and so forth. But I think they also make their voice heard when they... Um, see injustices taking place in our nation and in our world and speak out against them or challenge cultural institutions like Hollywood and the press 
um, uh, about their agendas and, and, you know, offensive things that they're doing. Um, all of those things are important, and I think the Tea Party folks have done all of it, by the way. They don't get as much attention for doing some of those cultural things as they do when they march on Washington and, and you know, shake their fists at Congress. But that's what the Tea Party is doing. They're doing it at a local level, uh, you know, beneath the, the, the out of the spotlight, uh, maybe. But um, and that's what we have to do. I, we have to be engaged in our culture even more than we're engaged in politics. I, I personally, you know, if you if you read my book, Taking America Back, I, you know, I think very specifically and emphatically that you cannot, cannot, impossible, take your country back through politics alone. It's just one avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, had an interesting interpretation, and I really appreciate you actually putting some feet on this in your book about Romans chapter 13. And you know, many Christians say that means you should never ask questions of your rulers or things like this. And then there are other Christians who believe that you know they should address tyranny when it comes up. You know, people right. like Chuck Baldwin and others. Um, what are some examples you cite in the Bible of civil di- disobedience and resistance to the tyranny? of established governments, and were any of these to the extent of overthrowing the existing government? No, I I can't think of an example of overthrowing the government, you know, um, but but I think it's clear, you know, you, you obviously have examples of, you know, apostles being told to stop uh, preaching the word and, and saying, no, we're, you know, we're, we're going to do what God tells us to do, not listen to our civil authorities. Um you have, uh, um, you know, I think many <clears throat> admonitions about uh, about following God's law uh, rather than man's law. And, you know, what I would say, and this is a debate that I think that the, the founders went through. You know, I know that there are people today. I hear from Americans today who say the founders, w- what they did was unbiblical. But when you're... When when your government um, exceeds its own authority, when your government is not <clears throat> a godly government, when it breaks its own laws, which was true in colonial America and it's true today with our country today, I think you are absolutely justified. Uh, I, I don't see any biblical prohibition by any stretch of the imagination <clears throat> to... Um, to changing that and to and to civil disobedience. Uh, remember what the founders did, of course, was they resisted a foreign entity from imposing its will on them. Uh, in, in some respects, I think you, you know you can equate for many Americans today. They they see Washington as a you know a foreign alien kind of a force as well. And I think that's debatable. I think you know you could um, you could ask you could debate that question with how many angels you can get standing on the head of a pin. But um, at the end of the day, uh, look, we're we're called as as believers to be salt and light in this world. I think that's our main job. And I think if we do that and we do it, you know, we do it as effectively as we can. That will, 
you know, turn the tide just in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Have we done that? Have we gone out and evangelized our our country? No. I mean, I, I, I've been evangelized. I'm 56 years old this month. Mm-hmm. I've had one person evangelize me in my life yeah. when I came to Christ. Not had anybody since that time when mm-hmm. I was, you know, 20-something years old evangelize mm-hmm. me. Um you know, that's a very, very important thing. You talk about taking America back. Um, that's a really good way. The, the the War of Independence was preceded by one of the greatest revivals that probably ever took place in North America. And uh, and it came with uh, uh, a lot of, you know, interest in the Bible. In fact, the, the colonists were probably the most biblical literate people on the planet mm-hmm. uh, at that time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's kind of where we need to get back to, in my opinion. Uh, Mr. Fair, um, I've got some sort of uh, more philosophical questions to, that mm-hmm. really prompted my thinking from reading your book. And it's a great read. I recommend everybody get it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a quick read. But, uh, but these questions have a little bit of a long-winded preamble. So if you can bear with me, I want to get your comment on some thoughts for us to sort of mull over. You know, rather than to begin with a whole new philosophy about governing, as the Tea Party movement's attempting to do, and as you further refine in your book and give them further guidance on what to do, it appears to me that a workable and defendable alternative that could even meet the requirements of the evangelical mind in America has been refined over the millennia by those who have constructed the principle of natural law, which presupposes innate rights all humans have, which are not imputed by governments, but seem to be acceptable to all people worldwide, particularly when they consider its application when they're either on the giving side or the receiving side. You know, they they, they can could stand either either circumstance and, and be able to live by these these uh, precepts. It limits the unavoidable course of power of human government to the bare minimum. Uh, and to only where coercive and forcible power is absolutely needed, such as the defense of personal property and against individual assault, the enforcement of contracts and remediation for fraud, the ability to provide authoritative courts to protect these citizens' rights in individual cases, and application of law enforcement to enforce them, and then, of course, you know, national defense to protect from foreign aggressors, you know, in this era of the nation-state that we have. Now, these minimal roles are also consistent with biblical teachings and laws against covetousness, theft, murder, etc., and God's command for rulers to provide justice, and that includes economic justice against the fraud of dishonest weights and measures, uh, and peaceable societies in general. And these, what I call profane or non-sacred tasks, are left to secular governments to do, while the sacred task of moral upbringing, including... Uh, training an individual resistance to corruption and hidden sins that no law can really prohibit against, uh, the teaching of the rest of God's laws and invitations for an individuals to join into the additional restrictive covenants with God in a non-coercive manner is then left to the sacred institution of the church and its empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And then the citizens retain the right to either pursue other institutions or none at all in these matters. Why would this simple approach, which would place Christians in good stead with the rest of society by not using the coercive power of the secular government for sacred ends and thus threatening them, not serve as an acceptable means to produce a peaceful society? I can't think of any reason except we have people that, uh, you know, like Elena Kagan is about to be uh, confirmed to the Supreme Court who doesn't, uh, 
even seem to accept the fact that there is such a thing as natural law. And so, you know, we're dealing with, uh, you know, you, in the preface, you you say that this is something that pretty much everybody accepts. Um, and they're pro- certainly uh, in the time of uh, the founders, that was true. I mm-hmm. think you had a broad, broad consensus on something <laughs> that obvious. It's obvious. It's self-evident, yeah. as they would put it. Right. But nothing is self-evident to today's society. See, when you when you get so far away from God, you you can't see the forest for the trees, mm-hmm. and so you have denial that there is any uh, concept that, uh, as natural law, as as she did in her testimony before Senator Coburn, and I think that that is you know <laughs> didn't get that much attention, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, it does illustrate mm-hmm. the predicament we find ourselves. in. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, hmm, bionic. Yeah, this this interview, and then this is the content of his book we're focusing on now. We're going to use some extrapolations of his book tomorrow on our conclusion. But mm-hmm. um, one of the things he talked about was this, this umbrella of putting economic issues and moral issues like abortion under the same banner. I was a little confused about by all that, to be honest. Um, you know, there's no question, I think you and I agree, that the government should be small, should not tax us a lot. Mm-hmm. We should vote for people who agree with that, at least our personal opinions. Sure. But the fact of the matter is, <coughs> those are personal opinions. I, I can only indirectly show scripture. I think it's in our best interest to do that, mm-hmm. but I can't necessarily say that it's a scriptural mandate to well, do that. Mm. Okay, they paid high. Ta- I mean, God says He doesn't like high taxes when they were going to get a king, mm-hmm. but the fact of the matter is they paid high taxes under Rome, mm-hmm. and uh, Jesus said, "Well, here, take a fish, take a coin out of the fish, give it to him, yeah. and on. Do your pay what you receive what you receive." So all I'm saying is not that I don't agree that we should have small taxes and things, but to render them one and the same, that they they carry the same level. Like for mm-hmm. example, what if abolitionists said? The taxation rate in the 1800s was of equal importance to slavery. Would, I think would, that would be a problem. Would that have watered down their moral mandate to have done that? And in hindsight, which was the greater mm-hmm. point? What, what does history tell us was the bigger, sure. bigger concern? Not that taxes aren't an evil, mm-hmm. but I'm just saying, uh, I, I just wonder, is there some line that you draw in which you drag in the authority of the church and you get into exploitation of the church? Yeah, you know, it's interesting reading, reading uh, authors like Richard Wormbrand. Uh, who, you know, in, in his case, the church stood in complete, you know, uh, the underground church was completely yeah. divorced from it, yeah. and it seemed to th- even thrive. And, you know, he talked about yeah. it really making uh, really making real believers and real men of God. And then, um, you know, even in the Orthodox church, he said, uh, it, per, you know, performed this amazing transformation to a thing that was very yeah. regimented and litur- liturgical into this thing of right. where he viewed them as, you right. know, real men of God and real martyrs. Right. Well, I'll give you another example, case in point. Mm. There are a lot of these meetings we cover, or you see if you in Christian circles, national meetings where to get together to prayer, mm-hmm. like National Day of Prayer. I think that just was where we pray for the sport, the spiritual and moral condition of our country. Mm-hmm. And the things on the list to pray for are things about cap and trade, or about uh, drilling in the Gulf or in in Alaska. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, I have opinions on those, but is that what we're supposed to like? plead to God on our knees about? Sure, no, I, I agree. I think 
uh, bringing in bringing in economic issues like that makes me it makes the whole thing feel very theocratic. And I think we should still do something with it, but but don't take the authority mandate of the church yeah. as, as as your thing. I mean, you can use reason, you know, simple reason to justify lower taxes, fairness, those kind of things, mm-hmm. w- w- without saying the Bible says you should do this or that or whatever. And I think it weakens our argument on the real moral issues of which there are no laws, things that people do in private, but that have an effect on other people, mm-hmm. you know, and that we need to address. Um, he also uh, talked about taking America's soul back, you know, and the fact that a lot of these things are, are Christian activities, but not everybody in America is a Christian. Um, you know, as, as well as Romans chapter 5, he talks about these cases of civil disobedience. And then I closed with uh, an example of a way by, by via natural law. Mm-hmm. We can have a small government address the mundane issues, but yet focus on the moral issues by the church, the things that a law can't even mandate, the things people do in their homes and quiet, where a law can't stop. Mm-hmm. But hopefully by the, the scriptures entering their souls, they can. And I, I, I don't know, you know, how well that was received or understood. but I don't know either. <laughs> we got to go. All right. Um, interesting segment tomorrow in conclusion. Mm-hmm. Come back then. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Big Wednesday. Bionic. Well, it should be a very important segment of a yep. very important interview. Mm-hmm. Um this week, we have um, probably one of the biggest movers and shakers in the American Christian community. We have Joseph Farah, who is the editor-in-chief and founder of WorldNet Daily, mm-hmm. and uh, who's the author of a new book called The Tea Party Manifesto. And uh, we've been talking to him this week. Uh, last time, we only got about 20 minutes of his time. This time, we got a full hour, mm-hmm. uh, which I appreciate. Very generous. I, yeah. but, but he is in the middle of anything regarding the Christian community politically, um, all your major Christian ministries he has connections with, most of your top well-known leaders nationally in Christian and conservative world write for WorldNet Daily for his articles. So mm-hmm. it's the number one news site on the web for, for news like mm-hmm. this. And... Um, he was invited, as we've mentioned earlier this week, as the co-speaker with Sarah Palin at the National Tea Party Convention in Nashville. Mm-hmm. He's at that level mm-hmm. of influence. And so this book was written with his view. presidential candidate kind of level. Well, I don't know about that, but he's he's a kingmaker. Well, okay? I mean, if, if, if Sarah Palin, a lot of people are bandying her around as a, you know, presidential It wouldn't candidate. be totally unheard of for him to be a VP candidate, I would bet. Oh, wow. You know. Uh, although sometimes he's a maverick. Uh, he did not support McCain no, for long-term you. reasons, yeah. uh, for strategic reasons, and took some heat from it. But this time we actually talk about in this last segment looking at the philosophical ramifications of what he shares in his book, which spends a lot of time talking about Christian and spiritual goals mm-hmm. as well as political goals, and they're all mixed in together in this book. They're sort of purposely intertwined together. And so uh, we closed the last show with a, a rather long-winded and convoluted discussion I had about using something that necessarily wasn't a, a Christian thing, but the principle of natural law. Yeah, sort of to, sacretizing the secular. To let the government handle the minimal tasks they're supposed to do. Just do that mm-hmm. for everybody. you got to do it for Christian, non-Christian alike. And then focus on the moral issues for agents like the church, which are equipped. These are sacred issues that need to be dealt with rather than running the courts and doing these other kind of things mm-hmm. uh, where we need, just need equality, we need honesty, those kind of traits. And uh, 
I think he generally saw saw some value in it. But we follow up in this discussion about uh, what's happening now with the church when America and and government is lifted up to the state of the mission of the church Mm -hmm. spiritually. And and we look at idolatry and talk a little bit about uh, dominionism Mm -hmm. and how it's affected some of their his writers, and it gets interesting from there. Yeah. So, no further ado, here's Joseph Farah of World Net Daily talking about the Tea Party Manifesto, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Well, I, I guess related to this, does, does the government have to be made sacred by invoking Christian imagery from the spiritual battle and thus project its legitimacy and role onto the, onto the government? Or can it merely function, the government, in a fair and unbiased fashion for a very simple task just like we, uh, you know, we do not uh, get into the p- political or spiritual leanings of people who do other functions in society, like pick up the garbage. We, we don't, mm-hmm. we don't uh, intermix the, the the those spiritual matters in those tasks. Are, are we, in other words, elevating the activities of government to something much more sacred than they should be, which then would require us to put our Christian biblical worldview into those to those kind of tasks? Well, I, I, I don't, I don't. To me, that's crazy you know i I don't understand why anyone would want to do that that mistake has been made throughout history you know a thousand times over that's exactly i think what the founders were trying to avoid um and uh you know so i do you think the church does that sometimes now where where what you hear about activities in the secular government sound very similar to what we'd hear about the functions for the church and used in the same imagery and language where we sort of put the, the kind of mission and activity sort of on par with each other. I don't, I don't doubt it. It's not, you know, really part of my uh, church experience. Um, I think there's, you know, all kinds of problems in our institutional church. And you know, when we talk about taking America back, one of the things we need to do is, you know, take the church back. That's one of the cultural institutions we need to <laughs> take back, get mm-hmm. back on, on its. Uh, on its bearings, um, you know, maybe start to emulate what we can see of how the first century church operated uh, in in the Book of Acts and so forth. But um, but even that, even there, you know, you see you see a lot of problems um, uh, occurring. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you know, uh, I, I I sense you're right, but I. It's not an area that I have given a great deal of thought to. Well, well, I don't mean to be confusing to you, our listeners. What I'm trying to say is that it seems to me the goals of government should be very well defined and very simple and, and right. very restricted. In other words, you need coercive power of the government to keep somebody's mitts off somebody else's mitts, uh, whether it's their personal property, their body, or whatever. And you have courts which have the authority to make a decision, and you have law enforcement which carries it out. And that's pretty much it, you know, keeping foreign invaders off of us. But I hear a lot of trying to elevate how we look at the stake in very Christian terms, in very spiritual terms, to try to elevate it to the kind of scale of the sacred activities that we have for the church to do. And I wonder if we risk the danger of actually making an idol out of America and out of our government by using the same kind of imagery for it as we do for the church and its mission. Well, brother, you're not going to find me doing that. Okay. And if you ever do, please call me on it. So if somebody would, would, would read something out of your book talking about our spiritual foundations, our Christian foundations, and you know the activities of our government, things like that, you would not want to give them the impression uh, that they are one and the same. 
Oh, absolutely not. Okay. Absolutely not. I think, you know, what you described as the ideal model for limited government is, you know, basically right out of the book of Judges and, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is where the founders got the idea of limited government. Mm-hmm. Um, book of Samuel, you know, mm-hmm. warns uh, about, you know, wanting a king, what the king is going to do to you. Exactly. And um, and so, you know, there there you go. I mean, these, these were biblically literate people who whose worldview was profoundly shaped by what they read in that book. And, um, you know, if we're to be... If we're to be equally discerning now, I, they've already created the model for us. That's why mm-hmm. I refer to the founders so often. Mm-hmm. Um, as I say in the book, you know, that what happened in the eight, late 18th century in America was the greatest explosion of liberty the world had, you know, had, had seen in, in any mm-hmm. kind of a political context. Right. And, uh, and, and so why should we, uh, why should we recreate the wheel? We've already discovered it. Right. Well, I, I guess I'm just want to ask you about, and I think it's related to this. You mentioned in your book, you talk about taking back the culture. And that's something we commonly hear in Christian circles and activist circles and things like this. And, and, and on a related matter, as you know, one of your regular columnists at WorldNet Daily, Janet Porter, has taken some heat from parts of the Christian media for her perceived growing trend, according to them, uh, with those who espouse dominionist views, which believe that Christians are supposed to conquer the seven mountains of influence and culture, take dominion of the earth, and then enforce these Christian beliefs worldwide, including by means of the government, and occupy until Jesus comes, you know, until they facilitate Christ's return by handing over a conquered earth over to him. Mm-hmm. And and as a result, you know, there's some Christian media networks that have dropped her because of these, you know, as they understood Dominion's connections. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's a very influential person. I think she's taken a little, little bit of a hit for this in, in, in some of her, her, uh, her, her openings and possibilities in her work. But she disputes this a lot. And I've seen it disputed uh, even somewhat in some of her columns, World Net Daily. But in one of her recent columns there in Walnut Daily, it's called Stop Whining and Take Dominion that, mm-hmm. that she wrote. Uh, she wrote in her column, she talks about in Matthew 4 about the, the devil uh, tempting Jesus with the planet and saying, you know, I'll give you all these things if you worship me. And Jesus said, no deal. Uh, and that Jesus got the keys back. You, you know, it's, it's, it's right there in her article. And it says that she, she says that, that Jesus handed these over to us. Uh, the keys of you know heaven and whatever you bound on earth will be bound in heaven, and that these keys that Jesus gave us gave us the authority, responsibility, access, and ownership uh, of the earth, which well, she says brings back to Plan A in Genesis about God said take dominion over every living thing in the earth, mm-hmm. uh, and she says uh, this was his original plan and it will be done on earth as in heaven that, that we can now take this dominion now just as we've been praying in the Lord's Prayer all this time. And she mentions in Psalm about where he says he'll give the nations for your inheritance. And she says that sounds pretty good to her. She says uh, we need to occupy until he comes. It's time we take ownership and occupy the centers of influence in areas of our culture. It's time we stop whining about how big the giants are and come back to plan A and take dominion. Uh, Is that a fair 
criticism about her embrace of dominionism. I know she's been seen on some videos at some conferences of people that are in dominion. I have groups. no idea whether it's fair or not. Uh, Janet Porter is a, a good friend of mine. Uh, yeah, I love her dearly as a sister in Christ. I've never diagnosed her theology, nor do I have any opinion of it whatsoever. Uh, I, we have people in, at WorldNet Daily of, you know, all uh, so many diverse theological viewpoints and political viewpoints, and I'm not here to defend what mm-hmm. anybody else writes in WorldNet Daily, okay. uh, in, uh, in, in the opinion columns of WorldNet Daily. If the, the only criteria for being an opinion columnist in WorldNet Daily is that you have that you disagree with Joseph Farah, who's an opinion columnist. There'd be no need to have two of me writing in WorldNet Daily every day. So we try to bring other viewpoints uh, to the table. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so we have people like uh, Hal Lindsey, who's probably one of the most notable non-dominionists mm-hmm. uh, in, on the planet. And we have, uh, you know, all kinds of people and all kinds of theological viewpoints uh, okay. Available to people. But that's not your position. Is that what you're saying? You're you're not of that dominionist no, I'm, viewpoint. I'm not. Okay. Well, the reason why I ask this is that from from what I read at their websites, the people, for example, the New Apostolic Reformation, people like Lou Engel, Cindy Jacobs, um, you, you know the general people who were involved. So Peter Wagner, Rick Joyner, Chuck Pierce. These people write that their intention is to really get ingratiated into the Tea Party movement. Uh, and they plan in their own writings to use this as a force by which to take their plans uh, into a key operating role of government. Physically, if necessary. Well, it, well, yeah. yeah I mean, their positions are such to do that. In fact, they were involved in, in uh, helping form something called, I believe it was the Pastors Tea Party. I, I'm trying to remember how it's referred. Patriot Pastors Tea Party. Uh, and, and they're involved in most of these meetings and key critical roles now. And, you know, they've been out and anointing political contenders like Newt Gingrich, Mike Huckabee, and their apostleship believes that they have complete autonomous control over the spiritual affairs of individuals. And now they're trying to extend this into the civil area where they actually have particular control over these different organizations. And these seven mountains of influence or power are the main teaching mechanism they're using that they're that's how which they're to conquer and take control and all well, of these listen, meetings let me just give you you know you guys can talk about this on your show anytime but i assume you had me here to talk about something of interest to me this is not okay because let me tell you why none of these dominionists are a danger to taking over anything <laughs> okay. right now Okay, they're, 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 we are not, there's no threat to America, there's no threat to the Tea Party posed by these people, no matter what they believe. Uh, I have not seen Dominionists take control of as much as a school board or a city council in America, so I'm not really worried about it. I'm sorry that they have this point of view, I think it's misguided, but at the end of the day, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. What, how, where, where's the threat? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, America is coming apart at the seams, and it seems to me that you're you're more interested in having a theological debate with people who, uh, as far as I can tell, are not making much headway in ushering in the kingdom. Well, one of the things you said in your book was that you were worried about people coming in and co-opting the tea parties. Mm-hmm. 
And we know there have been some political figures who tried to run up on stage at the last minute. Yeah. We had the guy who was the original founder of the Tea Party movement on our show. Uh, we talked to him about Glenn Beck coming up mm-hmm. and taking this position. And he said, hey, Glenn Beck's no part of us, which is, which is completely counter what Glenn said. And, and, and what we've seen on the, on the spiritual front and the meetings of the evangelical Christians in supporting these type movements is that they have been inviting these leaders to take a role and have adopted these seven mountains of power as something in meetings anywhere from Liberty University to all of the major Christian organizations talking about political power. And these people are unabashed in their support of using this as a way to usurp control. And their writings talk about even taking away uh, the facade of religious liberty that they consider to be a facade and a myth. And in the, in, in the whole idea of looking at people who can infiltrate the Tea Party, they have been invited with open arms by leading conservative political figures as well as evangelical leaders. And I just wondered if you had an opinion on that. I really don't. I don't see it. You know, it's just not a part of my life whatsoever. But anybody who says that, you know, talks about the facade of religious liberty, I think really has a problem. You know, I mean, you know, we we <laughs> salvation is an individual choice. It cannot be uh, a compulsory one. Mm-hmm. The state cannot be involved in any way, shape, or form in getting people saved. That's ultimately, you know, my bottom line on that. And so, you know, we're going to get uh, the government we deserve based on who we are uh, uh, in terms of how we serve God and are obedient to him. Um, but, uh, you know, this this stuff is, as far as I'm concerned, it's crazy talk. Hmm. Okay. Well, I've got one last question for you, and I appreciate you spending all the time with us here. And I want to recommend our listeners to get the book, The Tea Party Manifesto. By the way, where can they get that book at? Anywhere. Okay. Wherever, <laughs> anyway. fine, books, wherever fine books are sold. And they can also buy it at WorldNetDaily.com. Uh, yeah, get an autograph there. Okay. Uh, in closing. That's what I'm doing as we speak. Great. Okay, you're, you're, you're double dipping on us here. Um, you know, the some people see the American evangelical Christians. Uh, as having earned a reputation for being sort of unequivocally supporting and sharing power with authoritative societal structures. Uh, and these are people who are on the outside looking at Christianity. You know, their associations with the military, CIA, uh, their support for, you know, strong overseas foreign policy, police state, uh, Patriot Act, Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, preemptive wars, these kind of things. And in fact, um, if you listen to Christian media and radio, for example, you will usually hear things very supportive of those kind of things rather than than questioning it. Um, do, do, do you think that the possibility exists that if we continue to go down that road, and, you know, we've there, there's stories that's come to us about, you know, people like Eric Prince at Blackwater who plays critical roles in some of our major evangelical ministries uh, involved in groups like Council of National Policy and others. Uh, you know, major funders of evangelical Christian groups. This this information is out. People see it. Is there a risk that if the evangelical Christian community continues to maintain this strong connection to these authoritative structures, that we may lose our uh, ability to significantly influence our culture in the future, as as the the predilection for supporting these kinds of of uh, behaviors in our country start to wane? Our associations with them, will that begin to impact our ability to be salt and light? You know, I think of the circumstance like uh, the Dreyfus Affair, where the established church 
associated themselves with the power structures of the military and the government and against an innocent man in uh, Dreyfus. And, and what happened is the public, eventually the intellectuals, took the moral high ground and supplanted the church and supported an innocent man. And from that point, the church never recovered and really became more fascist in its nature, even supporting the Vichy regime later. Do we have a risk in America uh, of doing that unless we begin to look more deeply at who we associate ourselves with? Well, I don't think we're any better, you know, uh, Americans are any, American Christians are any better than German Christians were in, in World War II. If that's, if that's what you're asking, we need much more discernment. Uh, we need to question authority. We need to, uh, <laughs> we're not very good at that. that. That's, that's the church body. That's the, I, you know, that's the state of where we are. I think we're probably, um, you know, if you ask why, I think that, you know, well, because the evangelicals go to the same schools as uh, the non-evangelicals and the non-Christians. They go to state schools. They go, you know, they're, they're propagandized by the same uh, pop culture. And uh, so, you know, why should we be surprised at the end of the day that they're, they have so little discernment? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you know where I'm coming from. You know, we we both come from an evangelical Bible-believing tradition, and I think our views would have been consistent, consistently labeled conservative. But it's interesting that you never hear in Christian media discussions about Abu Ghraib, about Guantanamo Bay, about all of the innocent people that are there that have never had a fair trial or hearing. And, and these are the kind of stories that in generations past Christians used to stand up for people in circumstances well, like this. Have you been to Guantanamo Bay? <laughs> no, I haven't. Okay, so what knowledge do you have about the innocent people there? Well, I guess I guess one of our most recent ones was Colonel, Colonel uh, Lawrence Wilkerson. Lawrence yeah. Wilkerson, uh, who was involved down there and had government documents that said that there were basically about two dozen that were bona fide terrorists and that I think the government... Judge Andrew Napolitano yeah, he said the same thing. Yeah, he's agreed yeah. with the same thing, too, with us, but... Uh, you know, he said that the government conceded this, that this was the same case. And, uh, in, in fact, uh, I think Judge Napolitano, when he went down there, said he was appalled at what, in the military, told him they were appalled mm-hmm. until they'd gotten a hold of what had been going on down there. So mm-hmm. uh, whether that's right or wrong, and we're all limited by the information we get our hands on, but these questions, we don't even see them being asked by our fellow conservatives in the Christian media. And we just wonder if that's giving us a reputation. Well, you just that will end told me that us. Andrew Napolitano raised it. So, I mean, you know, somebody's raising it. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have the information at all. Uh, I hear every day people ask me, why isn't this story being covered? Why isn't that story being covered? Why isn't, this, why isn't the rest of the media covering the stories? And I say, you know what? I can only answer for myself. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. We do it every day. We cover to the best of our ability what's going on in the world. And I can't answer your questions about why others aren't doing uh, more. Have you covered uh, it much in World, Net, in World Net Daily? Have you all covered or discussed Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo Bay or these things much? Well, yeah, it's all there for you to go and see. You know, uh, I personally am not lying awake, you know, losing sleep at night over Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo Bay. I honestly am not. I, I, I don't. I don't know what your your fascination is. Uh, there are terrible, terrible, dark, you know, injustices being perpetrated all over the world. Uh, Christians being beheaded, raped all around this world, and you're worried about Guantanamo Bay. 
these people are being fed, housed, clothed. They're not being tortured. And, you know, maybe there's somebody in there who's innocent. But this is not going to be my, my biggest concern in the world, and I make no apologies for that. Mm-hmm. Listen, guys, we've been on for an hour. Okay. And I that's what I committed to. Well, that's right. That was our last question, and I want to thank you for being with us. I appreciate your honesty. And um, the Tea Party is obviously the headliner of what's going to impact the future, not only of, of the uh, conservative movement, but the church as well, too, in these matters. And I appreciate you taking the time to provide some guidance to them and our listeners. Mm-hmm. And All we right, certainly thanks. appreciate you being with us, and we look forward to having you back. You bet. Bye-bye. Okay, thank Bye-bye. you. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, Big Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was a very interesting concluding discussion with Mr. Farrow. We mm-hmm. appreciate him coming. He's a very, very influential person. Mm-hmm. We appreciate uh, the ability to ask him some questions yeah. and on our minds. I really appreciate the fact, yeah, like you said. He, and they were tied to this, this Tea yeah. Party thing because mm-hmm. the issues we brought up are impacting the Tea Party today. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, and he's looking at the future and how to make them. Uh, he speaks in his book about trying to avoid infiltration, and we try to talk about that. Of course, I, I mentioned this aspect of do we have to make the government sacred? Mm-hmm. For it to do its function, mm-hmm. are, 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 is is there a Trojan horse in doing that? Basically, by bringing that in, does it really complicate things from the Christian mission versus other things? That's an interesting interesting question. I know some would argue that that's what happened uh, with with Constantine. Right. You know, our churches today have American flags up mm-hmm. in the sanctuary that's dedicated to God. We Fourth of July. Uh, we have our military go on uniforms. That's very weird. Well, that is very that's common. It okay. may be weird, but it's common. Military uniforms worn while we're worshiping God uh, in, in our service. Um, God and is invoked alongside our America together as if they're intertwined. Mm-hmm. And in fact, people will quote Second uh, Chronicles 7.14 about if my people are called by my name and immediately associate my people as America. Mm-hmm. It's applied to America directly because of the presumption they are one and the same. Uh, my people, America. In some ways, it almost seems like it's the planet Israel, which who was actually written to at the time. Um, I mean, it almost sounds like it could be viewed as a form of idolatry, that sort of thinking. Uh, that's that's what my fear is. And like I've said on the show before, any time you elevate something above criticism, uh, you venerate it and made it a subject of worship. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I think sometimes we do that with our own nation. And when we talk about um, you know the spiritual activities of the church and then apply those words to America or to the mission politically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're going to cause some real problems for ourselves down the road. And we're going to earn the unnecessary ire of people outside the church. Mm-hmm. We can live peaceably and govern with other people outside the church mm-hmm. as long as the church is active in their moral mission, mm-hmm. uh, non-coercively with people, because you're never going to coerce people to be moral or just or any of those kind of things. Mm-hmm. You, a government can keep the peace. A government can keep people's hands off other people's stuff. But it cannot make people moral it. or just. Yeah, that's just, God's job. No law you write can, can do that. And you supplant the church and make the church unnecessary if the government can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I talked about Janet Porter, mm-hmm. uh, who is a regular writer. Uh, she has been dropped from most of the media that I know of that carried her show, but he has kept her, and he really didn't come to her defense one way or the other. I'm not saying he was negative. It's just that you know, he actually, says writers write their thing. And, I actually and, appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, 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 I'm 
pretty extreme Christian libertarian in some ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if he's if he thinks enough to have somebody on that he completely disagrees with, let's say, mm -hmm. um, I don't know if he completely disagrees with her, but let's just say for the sake of argument. Well, they usually speak together, you know, on the same podium. Together. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. 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 They're usually together on that. And uh, the bigger thing that disturbs me is that talking about the influence of the new apostolic reformation that are pushing this dominionism into the Tea Party, he flatly said it's a non-issue. Hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's not important. They have no influence whatsoever. It doesn't seem... No matter how many people that are on the stage with them, they're leading, no matter how much they've adopted these seven mountains. And I'm not blaming the Tea Party so much as the church. These are mostly church people who yeah. are in initiating these meetings from the mainline evangelical groups that have adopted this. Sure. And he says it's a non-issue. So yeah. I assume it will not be discussed at Walnut Daily, and he's not going to bring it up. Yeah. And so it's going to take things like PID Radio and us and others to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to go. Murr, would you yep. would you tell our listeners to uh, how to contact us here at FutureQuake? FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Well, they'll probably have some stuff to say to us here. Mm, indeed. <laughs> Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. We hope this at least got you some food for thought. Mm -hmm. Come back next week for another very interesting interview. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom. Uh, we're in an airplane, Bionic. We're in an airplane. Yeah, because you hear that sound? It sounds like we're in a B-17. You know, hopefully our listeners can't hear that right now. Oh, really? Yeah, it's pretty loud. Outside of the mass of Future Quake Studios, uh, every time we have our recording yeah. time, the entire metropolitan area does simultaneous <laughs> lawn mowing. <laughs> Gardening Group B is working on the west wall there. And yeah. Actually, I see NWO on the back of the shirt of one of the people cutting the grass, oh, yeah. so I don't know if that could be part of it or not, but is that, is that, that's our like problem. David Rockefeller out there in the lawnmower. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Future Quake Show. We hope you enjoyed our interview this week. Uh, it was a little briefer interview, even though we had uh, Mr. Farrer for longer than what we had anticipated, um, but what it did do is give us a little bit more time to cover the news this mm -hmm. week. So, we never have enough time to do that. Oh, yeah. We're lucky to get to a story apiece a lot of times. So. Yeah, Maybe we can mend our ways and mm -hmm. cover a little bit more. I any announcements before we proceed? Um, maybe pray for pray for Gigi, my the dog at my work. Okay. Very important to uh, my 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 boss's um, sort of positive mental outlook. I know we have lots of wonderful dog fans out there, mm -hmm. including yours truly here. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want me to say prayer for Gigi? Um, here? No, well, I think it's just enough to that our, okay. our listeners, listeners, sort of you dog lovers out there, keep that in mind. Yeah. And Pyro, our staff member, particularly ask you to do that yeah. as well too. Mm -hmm. um, anything else? That's pretty much it for me. Okay. Well, let's proceed in stories. You want to start first for me? Well, you know, I've been I've went a bunch of times first. Oh. So why don't you go first? You are so kind. Well, let me start with one here. Um, 
This is a generic story, but I think it's so important for the rest of what we cover, okay? A generic story. Well, this is not some specific um, event that just happened, but it's a new study that finds out about how we handle information, and I think it explains a lot of what we uncover on future quakes. So, Mm, So it's very interesting. This is from the Boston Globe, which is a newspaper we don't often read our Tomorrow's Tremors. No, from never, pretty much. Our, our news, uh, the, the story is, t- researchers discover a surprising threat to democracy, our brains. Huh. It's, it's one of the great assumptions underlying modern democracy that an informed citizenry is preferable to an uninformed one. Whenever the people are well informed, they can be trusted with their own government, Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1789. This notion, carried down through the years, underlies everything from humble political pamphlets to presidential debates, to the very notion of a free press. Mankind may be crooked timber, as Kant put it, uniquely susceptible to ignorance and misinformation, but it's an article of faith that knowledge is the best remedy. If people are furnished with the facts, they will be clearer thinkers and better citizens. If well, of course. I- of course, but of course. If they are ignorant, facts will enlighten them. If they are mistaken, facts will set them straight. In the end, the truth will out, won't it? Maybe not. Recently, a few political scientists have begun to discover a human tendency deeply discouraging to anyone with faith in the power of information. It's this. Facts don't necessarily have the power to change our minds. In fact, here's some data. In fact, quite the opposite. In a series of studies in 2005 and 2006, researchers at the University of Michigan found that when misinformed people, uh, particularly political partisans, were exposed to corrected facts and news stories, they rarely changed their minds. Mm -hmm. In fact, they often became more strongly set in their beliefs. Mm -hmm. Facts they found were not curing misinformation. They were looked at as, as like partisan, you know. Well, that's just a lie from the other side. Yeah, it it emboldened people. Okay. Um, Like an underpowered antibiotic, facts could actually make misinformation even stronger. Mm -hmm. This bodes ill for democracy because most voters, the people making decisions about how the country runs, aren't blank slates. They have have already have uh, beliefs and a set of facts lodged in their minds. The problem is that sometimes the things they think they know are objectively, provably false. And in the presence of the correct information, such people may react very, very differently than the mere uninformed. Instead of changing their minds to reflect the correct information, they can entrench themselves even deeper. Mm-hmm. The general idea that it's absolutely threatening to admit you are wrong, uh, says political scientist Brendan Nahn, lead researcher in the Michigan study. The phenomenon known as backfire is a natural defense mechanism to avoid that cognitive dissonance. Now, I think this is something that we encounter, both you and me and all our listeners, our Futurian listeners, because our show constantly uncovers things that sort of debunks what a lot of us sure. have thought all along. Well, I think it's important. This is actually, it's interesting we've been talking about this, because one of the things that I noticed as a 15-year-old kid was exactly this, that there were facts that you could tell other people, and at some point it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. They were just, they just said, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I am going to believe this. And I'm sure that doesn't happen to you now when you talk about oh, the subjects on future never, quake. I'm sure you never, never run never. into that. Yeah. And, of course, never in church. I mean, we know better than that. Yeah. Everybody's always very open. Open, to, yeah, yeah. open-minded yeah. to the truth. Yeah. 
These findings open a long-running argument about the political ignorance of American citizens to broader questions about the interplay between the nature of human intelligence and our democratic ideals. Most of us like to believe that our opinions have been formed over time by careful, rational consideration of facts and ideas. Wrong. And that the decisions based on these opinions, therefore, have the ring of soundness and intelligence. Wrong. In reality, we often base our opinions uh, on our beliefs, right. which can have an uneasy relationship with facts. And rather than facts driving beliefs, our beliefs can dictate the facts we choose to accept. They can cause us to twist facts so that they fit better correct. with our preconceived notions. Totally correct. And this is in the Boston Globe. I know. Okay? It's true, man. It's so true. And it's true it's left, right, whatever. It's yeah. just human nature. Worst of all, they can lead us to uncritically accept bad information just because it reinforces our beliefs. Correct. This reinforcement makes us more confident we're right and even less likely to listen to any new information. And then we vote. This effect is only heightened by the information glut, which offers alongside an unquestionable variation on the truth. Or, excuse me, endless rumors, misinformation, and questionable variations on the truth. In other words, it's never been easier for people to be wrong and at the same time feel more certain that they're right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, there was a Onion. Just to give an example of this. You know, the Onion, the uh, mm-hmm. the uh, satirical news thing says, "Area man, passionate defender of what he imagines Constitution to be." <laughs> uh, it says, uh, "Like the best satire, this nasty little gem elicits a laugh, which is then promptly muffled by the queasy feeling of recognition." The last five decades of political science have definitively established that most modern-day Americans lack the even basic understanding of how their country works. In 1996, Princeton University's Larry Bertels argued that a political ignorance of the American voters is one of the best documented data in political science. Hmm. Uh, let me just hit a little bit more of this. It's chock full of interesting information. Um, alone, it might be a, not be a problem. People ignorant of the facts could simply choose not to vote. But instead, it appears that misinformed people often have some of the strongest political opinions. Yep. A striking recent example, uh, you know, I have to remember a quote of that, that was a sign of his intelligence, that the problem in the world was that the most uh, well-informed and wise people were the ones least likely to push their views. Something to that effect. Mm. I don't uh, know about that, but there definitely is some sort of a correlation between having a lot of knowledge in a subject and not being strident about it, not being dogmatic. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, there's a study here. I won't give all the details. They did a university study that talked about um, what people thought about welfare, the impact, how many people were on welfare, those kind of things, um, how much impact it had on the country, and people gave their views. And then they gave them information that was corrected information that actually told them the real story, which differed, and then asked them their opinion, and they didn't change their opinion at all. It was still the same opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, It says part of the answer lies to this in the way our brains are wired. People tend to see consistency. There's a substantial body of physiological um, research showing that people tend to interpret information with an eye toward reinforcing the pre-existing view. Uh, and so, anyway, I think you get the uh, the, the basis of it here. Mm-hmm. And they give more uh, actual data, you know, that that uh, actually reinforces. So, anyway, Interesting. it says the petition the participants who self-identified as conservative believe the misinformation on WMD and taxes even more strongly than after giving the correction. With the two issues, uh, the more strongly the participant cared about the topic, a factor known as salience, the stronger the backfire. 
the effect was slightly different on self-identified liberals. When they read corrected stories about stem cells, the corrections didn't backfire, but the readers still did still ignore the inconvenient fact mm-hmm. uh, about the fact that Bush didn't restrict them. Um, so, anyway, yeah. I think that's something we're all in danger of. Sure, you have to you have to think about that actively. You have to set that up in your brain, like I am going to make, I'm going to let facts mean something. And you got to recognize that you have that tendency. Sure, and and that's it's amazing, really. That just thinking about that for five minutes every week, thinking I have to let facts actually impact me, and not whatever I think is going on mm-hmm. impact me, or to be beholden to one ideal or thought process or whatever. All right. I have to let the truth be part of the. I let it be part of the dialogue at least. And you know, it's like in the day and age we live in, we have the most of one kind of thing and the least of another. Mm-hmm. We have the most television channels ever in the history of mankind mm-hmm. and the least amount of quality programming to watch. Sure, it's ridiculous. The same thing with our news. We have more access via the Internet to news and cable TV than we ever had ever, but we have a dearth of truth, verifiable truth. Yeah. And, and even when the big three ran it all, even that was a question at the time. But uh, the, the challenge is to is to not just accept something convenient. And that's where I think you get into that rah-rah radio mm-hmm. where you get people who they just talk about the same stuff, it's sort of like a ditto head kind yeah, of thing, like whether left or right, yeah. where everybody gets in, they're all on one mind, and they just keep throwing out information to reinforce their positions. Mm-hmm. And we have to watch ourselves about that here on FutureQuake. Uh, We've we got to make sure we don't do the same thing. Of course, our listeners uh, believe that we have a lot of contrarian guests on here mm-hmm. that disturb them, and they, Sometimes and they disturb us. Sometimes I wonder if our listeners even like us. I mean, you know. Well, like, I don't want to push that. I hate to ask that question. <laughs> May not like the answer. So that's some, and I, I would throw that under the biblical category of walking circumspectly. Mm-hmm. Part of walking circumspectly, looking all around you, and with the God's eye view, what's going on, is you got to really know yourself. Yeah. And be able to challenge information you hear and make sure where you heard it from. I think it's important to just sort of randomly call people down at the first. Okay. The okay. first first sign of any sort of difference of opinion. Thank you for that advice. Yeah, that always advances the kingdom of God. Yeah. Uh, you have a story for us. Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll do a short one here, saving the longer one for perhaps a later later point. Bank of International Settlements lent 380 tons of physical gold via the telegraph. It takes a lot to spook the solid old gold market. Via the telegraph? You mean the London telegraph? Yes. You're not talking about it was wired by telegraph? No, okay. via the London telegraph. Okay. Uh, it takes a lot to spook the solid old gold market. But when it emerged last week that one or more banks had lent 380 tons of gold to the Bank of International Settlements in return for foreign currencies, there was widespread surprise and confusion. Yeah, I'll bet. Uh, The news that a mystery bank had just pawned the family jewels gave traders a jolt. Nervous about the sudden transfer of almost 20% of the world's annual gold production and the possibility of a sell-off. In a tiny footnote in its annual report, the bank disclosed its unusually large holding of gold compared with nothing the year before. Uh, The disclosure was a large factor in the correction of the gold price this week which fell below $1,200 for the first time in more than a month. Concerns hinged on whether the BIS could potentially sell on this vast cash of bullion in the event of a default, flooding the market with liquidity. It appears to have raised $14 billion for whoever has been doing the swapping. Small fry on the currency markets, but serious liquidity in the gold market. So, there Hmm. you go. 
Is this a harbinger of some big event that you think will probably be coming? Well, uh, it could be, and I w- that's why I'm sort of informing our listeners of it, because it hasn't been reported by the United States at all. In fact, I actually, it's funny, funny we're even having this conversation and about facts and everything. Um, I stopped off at the supermarket to grab a to grab a piece of fruit to eat on the way over here, mm-hmm. and um, they were there were two guys at a table like hawking the the, the local newspaper, mm-hmm. and uh, they said, you know, how would you do you listen to news? And I said, you know, I said I don't I don't want to buy your newspaper. And they said, hey, you're hostile, man. Why don't you, you know? <laughs> trying to sell us why not and i said because you don't report the news whoa and they looked at me and i had my i I was lucky i had my stories in my back pocket and uh they said well what do you mean and i said bank of international settlements lends 380 tons of physical gold or Mm -hmm. 20 percent of the world's annual gold production is that in your newspaper and he was like uh let me show you the story about that. Yeah. yeah. So Hollywood news. Yeah. Kind of. Mm-hmm. Kind of. I suppose it would be somebody who was very regionally uh, interested, yeah. you know, interested locally and maybe regionally. Right. Um, and, and of course, you know, sort of celebrity gossip stuff in the back and all that stuff. Right. People just don't get their news that way anymore. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, a lot of times when our in our media and entertainment, we just accept the slop they put on our plate. Mm-hmm. Rather than taking our business elsewhere, yeah. that's what we need well, to do more frequently. Well, and it's funny because now, now people have like they don't know that it's slop anymore. They go, "Mmm, this is filet mignon." Yeah, yeah. They've had their taste buds seared. Yeah, via probably their education, public education systems. Indeed, seared their their discernment mm-hmm. buds. Complete inability to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. and some churches perform that function too. Sadly, some, many. Would you like another story? Yeah, it's a small one. All right. Okay. This is another one that uh, will raise a little bit of an eyebrow. Um, Fox legal analyst uh, says Bush should have been indicted. This is from the raw story, um, hmm. common news source, very good source. Um, Fox News senior judicial analyst, which he's been on our show, uh, Andrew Napolitano, made some surprising remarks Saturday that may go against the grain in his conservative network. In an interview with Ralph Nader on C-SPAN's Book TV to promote his book, Lies the Government Told You, Judge Andrew DiPolitano said that President George W. Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney should have been indicted for torturing, for spying, for arresting without warrant. The judge believes it is a fallacy to say that the U.S. treats suspects as innocent until proven guilty. The government acts as if a defendant yeah. is guilty merely on the basis of an accusation, said Napolitano. Somebody give that guy an award. How about an Oval Office? Yeah. Nader was curious about how this applied to the Bush administration. What about the more serious violations of habeas corpus, uh, wondered uh, Nader. You know, after 9-1-1, Bush rounded up thousands of them, Americans. Many of them Muslim Americans are Arabic Americans, uh, and they were thrown in jail without charges. They didn't have lawyers. Some of them were pretty mistreated in New York City. You know, they were all released eventually. Well, that is so obviously, this is Napolitano speaking, a violation of the natural law, the natural right to be brought before a neutral arbiter within moments of the government taking your freedom away from you, answered Napolitano. So what President Bush did with the suspension of habeas corpus, while the whole concept, with the whole concept of Guantanamo Bay, with the whole idea that he could avoid and evade federal laws 
treaties, federal judges, and the Constitution was blatantly unconstitutional and in some cases criminal, he continued. What should the sanctions uh, be for Bush and Cheney, asked Nader. They should have been indicted. They absolutely should have been indicted for torturing, for spying, for arresting without warrants in Napolitano. I'd like to say that they should be indicted for lying, but believe it or not, unless you're under oath, lying is not a crime, at least not an indictable crime. It's a moral crime, he said. Hmm. This isn't the first time that Napolitano's comments have veered away from the standard talking points of Fox News. He has predicted that Arizona's controversial immigration law will be blocked by the court. Napolitano also said that Arizona's governor would bankrupt the Republican Party fighting for the law. Hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah. He is a man who thinks for himself. Sure. Whether you agree with him or not, he thinks for himself. And, and he, he's always looking out for the little guy and mm-hmm. the rights of the individual because the time will, will come when every one of us will be the little guy. Mm-hmm. There's going to be people knocking at your door in jackboots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the church, which we're concerned about in particular, tends to try to align themselves with the very powerful. Yep. Well, Military, powerful. Right. I, don't, I don't think that's historically Right, the case, right. I agree. Certainly uh, lately. But they have always counted on these powerful uh, cronies mm-hmm. to help cover for them. And believe me, when the crackdown comes, they'll be nowhere to be found. Mm-hmm. No more than Israel could rely on Egypt. When uh, mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar came, that was supposed to be their uh, their great ally, and it turned mm-hmm. out they, the Bible says they were like a broken reed. That's what God told them would be, yeah. Yep. No strength at all to lean on. So. Yep. yep. So that's it. What about another one from you? Another one? Yeah. All right. So what do we got here? Do we want to hear about Iranian nuclear scientists? Yeah. Or U.S. Marines training with the Los Angeles Police Department? Let's hear about the Iranian scientists. Okay. This is via The Guardian. Uh, missing Iranian nuclear scientist turns up in U.S., of all places. A missing nu- Iranian nuclear scientist has taken refuge in the Pakistani embassy in Washington following claims that he had been kidnapped by the CIA. Iran accused Saudi Arabia of handing over Shaham Amiri to the U.S. after he went missing during a pilgrimage to Mecca a year ago. A man purporting to be Amiri subsequently appeared in a series of internet videos. In one, the man was said he was studying in the U.S., while in another, a man calling himself Amiri said he was hiding from U.S. agents. Huh. <laughs> oh, man. This morning, a spokesman for Pakistan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Islamabad said Amiri had been dropped off, quote-unquote, at the Iranians' interest section of the Pakistani embassy in Washington at 6.30 p.m. last night. He was dropped there by someone, said Abdul Basit. Uh, he's in the Iranian interest section, not in the Pakistani embassy, per se. They are making arrangements to repatriate him. Because Iran and the U.S. do not have diplomatic relations, Pakistan handles Iranian interests in the U.S. The Iranian interest section is in a separate building about two miles from the Pakistani embassy and is staffed by around eight Iranians. Basit said he did not know how Amiri had got there or how he could be he would be sent back to Iran. Separately, Iran's state radio reported today that Amiri was taking refuge and wanted to return to Iran immediately. Amiri, who works for the for Iran's atomic energy organization, could have could have valuable information on the progress of Iran's nuclear program. According to some reports, he had defected to the U.S. and was helping the CIA. Incorrect. The U.S., Britain, and other Western powers allege that Iran is secretly trying to build nuclear weapons, uh, while Iran insists its nuclear development is for peaceful purposes. 
Last month, CIA chief Leon Panetta said Iran had produced enough low-enriched enriched uranium to make two nuclear weapons within two years. On on the gosh, didn't they say that like two years ago? Yeah, it's like they keep killing the third highest guy in Al Qaeda. Yeah. What was that guy's name? Do you remember that guy's name? I, I don't remember. Zawahiri's number two. Yeah. I can't remember. There was a third, third. guy that he, he like died like seven Which times. Which they count on us not remembering his name. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Great. Mission accomplished. Yeah. Um, on on the 9th of June, the United Nations Security Council approved a fourth round of sanctions against Iran in an attempt to force it to comply with international demands. Iran is alleged to have received technological assistance in the past for its nuclear ambitions from renegade Pakistani nuclear scientist A.Q. Khan. So that story didn't say it very well, but this guy sort of, he's been missing for a while now, and he just randomly showed up on the doorstep of the uh, Pakistani, uh, well, the Iranian intersection of the Pakistani embassy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just like somebody dropped him. What do you think's going on? Um, the CIA got tired of playing with him and didn't know what to do with him. Hmm. They thought, should we dump him? I'm surprised he's still living. Yeah, that was kind of the one thing that doesn't make sense. If it really was the CIA, they would have likely. Yeah. You know, some of those people, I wonder if they just put a bug on them and let them percolate back to where they were and then try to track who they hang out with. Yeah, oftentimes. It's hard to, it's hard to say, you know, with, with the whole advent of this sort of mind control technology and all that stuff that's been going on since the 70s. Right. You know, they can, they can do something to you and then implant a memory, a screen memory over it and who knows, you know? Right. So. We, we might be remembering the story we just said and it was just implanted in our brain. What? Hey, you've got a, want, me, want a quick one here yeah. before we call it a day? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, progressives form One Nation Coalition to compete with Tea Party. Oh. It's in line with our Tea Party this week. Yeah, so we had the coffee party, and then we had the national party. They'll keep trying to yeah, suck sticks. And, yeah, it's like, you know, we now we have uh, the corporatist slash beltway fear party. Well, here, here <laughs> here's this one. It's called Dubbed One Nation. It's a grassroots coalition of 170 liberal and civil rights groups. That organizers hope will help the progressive cause regain its voice two years after the election of Barack Obama and counter the Tea Party narrative, the Washington Post reported. Now, you know, I thought when Barack Obama came in, that was going to be like Quinn the Eskimo arriving. I mean, it was going to be the ultimate for mm. them to get everything they wanted, and they're already disgruntled. Yeah. You know, they're, they're more concerned about Tea Party than they're happy that Barack Obama's in office. It's yeah. Interesting. Having been confronted with the specter of the Tea Party, a specter, I love that. Um, We felt urgent to organize the majority of this country, which voted in 2008 and has gone back to the couch, said Benjamin Jealous, president of the The NAACP. The guy's last name is Jealous? Yeah. Uh, No. It's true. President of the NAACP, one of the movement's members. Uh, We've been split off in different directions. Among the groups involved are the National Council of La Raza, the Service Employees International Union, the NAACP, AFL-CIO, and the United States Student Association. I'll bet you I don't vote. I don't, along with most of those, yeah. the AFL-CIO perhaps we'd have something in common. But I couldn't. I'll bet I don't have a single thing. So you're not part of La Raza or any no. of those. What I thought it was sort of convenient is it bundles all these people into one group, so you keep them in one centralized area there. Yeah. As its first goal, One Nation is planning a march in Washington, October 2nd, that will push for progressive ideals, including more government spending. That's very popular. 
on yeah, job go over on job creation. The march will demonstrate to Congress that these agenda items have support across multiple demographics, said Jealous. Uh, he's there with the SEIU uh, president as part of this. Um, you know, SEIU is always that group that shows up to beat up Tea Party people. You know, mm-hmm. with the, I know. the coalition came together out of political necessity, Paul Starr, professor of public affairs at Princeton, told the Post. Liberal leaders see much of the progressive agenda at risk in this election, said Starr, who also edits the American Prospect, a liberal magazine. There is no choice but for these groups to get together. The historical pattern is that voter turnout falls disproportionately among minorities and young people at midterm elections. So they are fighting a historical trend. Hmm. Yeah, if I was if I was very liberal, I would be scared to death. You know, according to some of our listeners, we are extremely liberal because well, we say things about Bush, so we must be liberal. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you spend too much time worrying about what other people think. Uh, maybe. Go back to that Boston Globe thing. And maybe, reread it just to okay. refreshen up. Well, you know, uh, it's funny. I, I don't say more about Obama and this stuff because it's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's not really a safe argument, yeah. you know, the pagans are or a fair do, argument. Yeah, the pagans are going to do what the pagans are going to do. Speaking of pagans, uh, Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Now that's the kind of segue I like right there. Well, we got to go. Okay. Uh, come back tomorrow. We'll have some more news for you tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day. Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quick Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom. Getting funky bionic. Getting funky? Yeah. Why? Well, because you were kind of getting funky with your mic there, and I I didn't know how you to do it. You refer to things people don't know out in the audience. Yeah, but they think they kind of like it. Yeah, like you're getting it. a lot of emails in support of that? Yeah. Well, no, because I don't actually publish my email. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Future Quake Show. Sorry about that interlude there. We... Sometimes it feels like the Three Stooges sometimes. Knock it off. The girls will be here any minute. This is a Christian radio show, although we have a hard time showing evidence of it, other than we love Jesus. And this is Friday. Yesterday, since we had a briefer interview this week, we had a preliminary news segment yesterday. Now we're back to our regular Friday routine, which means what? What does Friday signify on Future Quake? Today's tremors or tomorrow's review of the future's news. Well, you were really close. Still not right, exactly, but tomorrow's tremors or today's review of the future's news. Mm. So you're pretty close. Pretty close. I think you could see I was stressed. You gave it the old college try. Yeah, I I, I was there for you. Yeah, thanks, bro. I appreciate that. Well, we've got more news. A lot of the news that we leave on the table, we never get to uh, cover. Indeed. So I've got some extra stories, and you were so kind to let me go first yesterday. Go, no, go first again. No, I hate to do that. Well, yeah, but I'm asking you to. Okay. Well, 
Because I've looked through your pile. Your pile's way better than my pile. Oh, no, I don't believe that. In fact, no. I was going to try and switch them, but you came in here to the studio uh-huh. real quick. It's like the old switcheroo trick. Yeah. Okay, well, I've got a new story for all our Futurian friends out there. We love every one of y'all. Appreciate y'all listening. Um, this was something that came out of the Daily Mail, the British newspaper. Mm-hmm. says, why I'm certain my friend Dr. Kelly was murdered. Wow. Okay, now Dr. Kelly was the specialist for the British on weapons of mass destruction. Yes, David Kelly, who was... Yeah, he was the specialist on weapons of mass destruction. He was was set to become an outspoken critic of various policies, and and he had some other stuff. Well, he had come out and said that um, the the, uh, government, British government, had taken, and he used the term sexed it up. He meant that they exaggerated mm-hmm. information that he had provided the government as a specialist how, how to, to support war. Uh, he was found, uh, he talks in here a little bit about this, found out in the woods outside his house a day or two after uh, it was claimed he may have been responsible for, um, you know, saying that the government had done this. Huh. Uh, after he had been fingered as complaining about what the government had done to sell, oversell the WMD, oh. uh, he was found out in the woods outside his home Um with uh, a small little cut in, right into a deep vein that you normally couldn't find you know, unless you were a surgeon. Mm-hmm. And supposedly he was bled dry, but there wasn't hardly any blood on the scene. And they said he, he did it with a, with a little rusty pocket knife that he had. Yeah. So um, I just wondered if he fell off a balcony because the, the CIA manual for, you know, um, a counterinsurgency and, mm-hmm. and assassination says that if you know the person, you can get close to him. You can. What you're supposed to do is reach down like you're tying your shoe, oh. and then grab him by the ankles. Take him out to the balcony. Yeah. Reach down like you're tying your shoe, and then grab him by the ankles and just stand up as hard and as fast as you can and chuck him over the balcony. Now, how in the world did you know that? I read it in the CIA counterintelligence and assassination manual. Are you a plant on the Future Quake Show? No, I'm a I'm a co-host. Pyro fully went through over your dossier, and he didn't come up with anything about you. Well, that's because I'm not anything. I'm just a voracious reader. Uh huh. And you know how to knock off people. Well, according to this, just according to the CIA manual, okay. and it says it says in there what you're supposed to do is then run down to the bottom if you can't escape immediately uh-huh. and, and be shocked and be like, I just got crazy and jumped well, over the I, ledge. I, I don't know him, what happened. I told him not to jump. Yeah. Yeah, I told him. Oh, look at his pant legs ripped. That's amazing how that happened. Wow. Prints on his shoes. See, my luck would be they'd grab my collar as they went over, and they'd pull me over with it. <laughs> so it'd be a double event. As he's going backwards, he grabs your tie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or or he'd hang by it and choke me to death hanging off the ledge. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't get this on other Christian radio shows. Of course not. You don't find this kind of deep insight. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the here's the story. Um, uh, let's see here. Okay, um, his friend, uh, this is about David uh, Kelly, Dr. Kelly. May Peterson has damning new evidence to suggest Dr. David Kelly's death was not a suicide. Uh, they used to walk the streets of Baghdad together after dark. She liked to clear her head after the tensions of the day. He wanted to compensate for the missed strolls he normally took in the Oxfordshire countryside near his home. This is when I guess he was doing the work on behalf of the government in, in mm-hmm. Baghdad. But these nightly outings for David Kelly, the ill-fated weapons expert, and May Peterson, his beautiful young U.S. military interpreter, 
also provided an intriguing insight to how perilous the British scientist's position had become. A senior member of the United Nations inspection team in Iraq, Kelly's mission was to discover whether Saddam Hussein was hiding weapons of mass destruction and to determine whether America and Britain should go to war. The stakes could not have been higher. To help him deal with this obfuscating Iraqi uh, officials, he assigned Peterson, a gifted linguist with the U.S. Air Force, who also had secret high-level links to American intelligence. Uh, beguiled by his mysterious younger colleague, Kelly asked if he could walk with her at night. Uh, so an unlikely relationship blossomed on the dark streets of Baghdad. Their friendship deepened when one night in 1998, five years before the U.S. and Britain invaded, a pair shared a life-or-death experience on a stroll around the Iraqi capital. Suddenly, a red laser dot appeared on the British scientist's clothes over his heart. An unseen sniper had him in his sights. The laser beam moved slowly upward until it trained on the center of Kelly's forehead. Amid unbearable tension, the red dot remained there for what seemed to be an, an age. The sniper didn't pull the trigger. It was simply a warning. Iraqi officials brushed off the incident, uh, snickering that it must have just been kids playing around. But Kelly knew his life was in grave danger, informing his younger companion that he had been told by intelligence sources that he was number three on a Saddam Hussein death list as a result of his work. The late Dr. Uh, let's see, uh, the, the Dr. David Kelly uh, again left the House of Commons on Tuesday, July 15, 2003, after giving evidence to the Commons Select Committee. Uh, shrugging off the risk, he told Peterson he couldn't abandon his mission, but he expected to be found dead in the woods near his home in Oxfordshire rather than in Iraq. Hmm. This is what he told her. It was a claim he repeated to other close friends. It turned out to be a chillingly accurate position. Prediction. Memories of those tense, heady days and nights came flooding back for May Peterson this week on the 7th anniversary of the death of David Kelly, her close friend and confidant, uh, on July 17th. It's a tragedy which continues to be cloaked in controversy. We started out as work colleagues, and he became like an older brother to me. Uh, he was a man of impeccable integrity, honor, dignity, and respect. His family meant everything to him as did his work. Uh, it is time the facts came out. Um, let, let me just skip, scoop down here. It says, uh, uh, Kelly, as he, as he is well known, was found dead in the woods near his home in July 2003. It's right after he gave this data. Mm-hmm. Having supposedly used a blunt knife that he'd had since he was a boy to hack into a tiny, deep vein and bleed to death, even though little blood was found at the scene. Despite leaving no more, uh, no note for his wife or his beloved daughter, who was due to get married three months later, the government's Hutton inquiry at his death concluded in 2004 that Kelly committed suicide. After being named as a, the source of a BBC report suggesting that Tony Blair's spokesman sexed up intelligence about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction in order to justify going to war against Iraq. Uh, after repeated calls for a full inquest into Kelly's death, the Labour government instead decided that official papers about the affair should be kept secret for an unprecedented 70 years. And that even more bizarrely, the reason for that decision is itself a state secret. Do you understand that? Yeah. No, All of the findings, 70 years, it's locked up. Yeah, they're up. saying, what they're, what, what they're, to my ear, translation, we killed them, we're not going to tell you. Yeah, and we'll be dead by the time you find out. Mm-hmm. All yeah. of us who are involved will be dead. It, that's the identical thing they did with the Kennedy assassination, sure. right? 
well, the similar, key evidence was locked up for yeah. like similar period of time. The Warren, the Warren Commission, which didn't actually say anything other than I mean, they issued a report, but yeah. I mean, they uh, there was certain data that was locked in that that long. Um, now, amid signals that the new British coalition may reexamine this utterly perplexing case, uh, Kelly's former translator and spiritual soulmate has come forward to give the saga a dramatic, compelling new twist. In damning evidence to the new Attorney General, Dominic Grieve, who has indicated his concerns about the case, Peterson revealed that Kelly could not have killed himself by hacking into his wrist because he could only move his arm with difficulty due to an old injury. He couldn't even cut a stake, says Peterson, holding her own arm out stiffly to mimic his disability. He hurt his elbow and was incredibly weak in that arm. She also rubbish claims that he had taken 29 copromoxyl painkiller pills before cutting his wrist, saying he struggled to swallow pills. For Kelly suffered from unexplained dysphagia, a, a syndrome that makes it almost impossible to swallow pills, confirmed by other friends. Peterson recall, recalls offering him a pill for a headache, uh, which he refused, saying he could not swallow any pills and explained he'd had the problem for years. Uh, and she says, ex- ex- speaking to the Daily Mail, Peterson insisted that she was determined to honor the memory of the kind, brilliant man by unearthing the truth about who really killed him, saying this cries for a formal, independent, complete review. If that means stirring the ashes, so be it. And mm-hmm. so it just goes further on into... Uh, the the intrigue about this, I suggest people look into this further. I've thought about doing a show about this sometime. I don't know what you'd think about it. I think it'd be great. There's a whole list of things that I'd love to do shows on, like uh, Operation Gladio. Um, that that would be a big one, actually, Operation Gladio, some mm-hmm. of the stuff that they put in food, you know, the whole excitotoxin thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't know. We could add that to the list. You know, I've been eating, like, almost no processed foods at all. Wait a minute. You told me Zero. a couple of days ago that you were eating pork rinds. Okay, I had those. But those are really natural. Do you know what goes in pork rinds? MSG. It's just, just pig skin. Excitotoxins. There might be a few excitotoxins in there, but, but I don't eat that much of that, just if I need a little crunch. But yeah. no fried foods, no breaded foods, uh, nothing. No not pre- cakes or, you know. Well, I, I salute kind of you in trying to... Trying to better yourself. No NutraSweet. Through diet. That's, Zero I never saw that. You didn't eat any NutraSweet. We went out to eat a couple of days like ago. Like Charles Atlas right now. Yeah. How, many, how much weight have you lost? Well, my goal is to get down to morbidly obese. That's my, that's my <laughs> hope. Uh, I've lost nine pounds so far. Woohoo! So, yeah. so I'm a more svelte version than those of you who saw me at the last day's conference. Yeah. Um, some, of them, some of them said, is, that, is, is this conference name because... He's not going to make it yeah, tomorrow? Yeah, yeah. I probably, probably took bets to yeah. see if I survived the conference. <laughs> I hated eating everybody's snacks off the table, too. I felt yeah. bad doing that. I know. I don't know, but you did show up with, like, the trench shovel that looked like the spoon, you know? Uh-huh, thanks. So. Appreciate that. And left with a pine cone. You saw <laughs> that know, little pine up. cone statue that I had. I know. It's what's up there the, in the corner. I don't know Yeah, after the pineal gland. So we need to put it more prominently. We've moved around the studio in here to accommodate mm-hmm. a little better signal. Mm-hmm. That we will we will see if it works as desired. But I enough could, riffraff. I wonder if you could like put straps on it, kind of put it on your head. On the pine cones or like pyramid power? Yeah. Have pineal pine cone yeah, power. Just strap it off. The I'm board. afraid I might enter an altered state if I had that thing resting on my head. I probably you probably would because it would cut off the blood supply <laughs> back here. It's head. just like a mega a pineal gland. Yeah. That huge 
pine cone statue. Yeah. I, I'll take a picture of that and put it up at the future quick website so people can see Good it. Good idea. Good idea. And maybe we could have world figures and others wearing that on their head. You know, if it's good enough for the Pope to carry around with one on his staff, Might just well like Dionysus. Enough. Dionysus and the Pope both carry one right on the end of their staff, mm-hmm. and, you know, and a huge pine cone statue right there in the Vatican Square. Yep. It's like the largest statue mm-hmm. of its kind. came right from the Temple of Isis, and they hauled it over and put mm-hmm. it in the Vatican. Yeah. Okay. Before we get in more trouble, you want to read a story for us? Well, I got several of them here. Let me do this one. You US can't read them simultaneously. They have to be sequential. A tough-talking... FBI agent. Oh, no, he's skipping. killer, Los Angeles. I should never have suggested that. Okay. It's police sergeant. Yeah, okay. Um, I can't interpret those times, (laughs) so you better stick with one. U.S. Marines train with Los Angeles Police Department. So, you know, very light. You know, yet one of the things that I cover here frequently is like, you know, the rise of the police state. You know, here we have U.S., as you'll find out, U.S. Marines dressed in plain clothes um, getting quote-unquote, sort of briefed on what they should do in Afghanistan. Hmm. Uh, A tough-talking, muscular Los Angeles police sergeant steadily rattled off tips to a young Marine riding shotgun as they raced in a patrol car to a drug bust. Be aware of your surroundings. Watch people's body language. Build rapport. Marine Lieutenant Andrew Abbott, 23, took it all in as he peered out of the graffiti-covered buildings, knowing that the lessons he learned recently in one of the city's toughest neighborhoods could help soon... Uh, could help him soon in the war against the Taliban in Afghanistan. People are the center of gravity, and if you do everything you can to protect them, then they'll protect you. That's something true here and pretty much everywhere else. Abbott was among 70 Camp Pendleton Marines in a training exercise that aims to adapt the investigative techniques of the LAPD uh, uh, has used for decades against violent street gangs to take on the Taliban as a more powerful drug trafficking mob than insurgency. Now, here's where the interesting thing is. You know, there are numerous, numerous video clips of, of, uh, you know, our, uh, you know, Army, Navy, Marines, people on the ground saying, yeah, we don't like it, but, you know, um, you know, that everybody here plants opium and we just sort of pretend it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so uh, the other thing is, is that uh, I believe it was. While the Taliban was in power, while obviously not excusing their actions, the street price of uh, they they outlawed uh, growing of the growing of heroin, growing of opium, mm-hmm. and uh, the street price of opium uh, rose by ninety percent. And uh, after the invasion of Afghanistan, you know, it went down. Mm-hmm. So to to use the Taliban here as a powerful drug trafficking mob is not really mm-hmm. it's not valid. Uh, but I'm sure we'll get tons of emails. I don't care what kind of information you give me. I, it still won't change my mind. I, I know. <laughs> and, now, like and now I have justification from yesterday's story. Yeah. That I won't even change my mind about what you just told me. Yeah. I, and I know, I'm sure there are people who will be like, that's not true. I'm mad at him now. But uh, it's it's just true. <laughs> it's just self-evident. You know? <laughs> the Marines hope that learning to work uh, to work like a cop on a beat will help them better track the Taliban. Build relationships with Afghans leery of foreign troops and make them better teachers as they like, as they try to professionalize an Afghan police force beset by corruption. Now, flash flashback to another story I read several weeks ago. Uh, one of the things, in, one of the things that everybody in Afghanistan admits is that the uh, American, uh, you know, American government is in some way, shape, or form uh, funding the Taliban. Even U.S. diplomats have admitted that, according to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, going on. Well, my, one of my favorite stories we had was CBS News 
reported that the Taliban had that office in Kabul mm -hmm. where you'd actually contractors and they got the government contract and the money would go to that office, mm -hmm. give them money so then they would they not attack up a bridge or whatever. Yeah. So it was like a tax they paid to the Taliban mm -hmm. to leave us alone. The Talatax. So everybody got a cut except the American taxpayers. Mm -hmm. Everybody else in the process made no, some that money off of it. No, everybody's reaching into your pocket, to, mm -hmm. you know build something or you know that's an incredible racket you think about that if you had defense contractors and somebody like a taliban come together yeah. and say pretend to fight us pretend to have a war we'll pretend to resist you mm -hmm. we'll pass out we'll dole out the money it reminds me almost it's even more insidious than a movie like kelly's heroes with clint eastwood where that american tank goes to rob the bank mm -hmm. and they they make it all the way there but they're in the way of one of their german tanks so mm -hmm. they cut him in on the deal yeah you know, and then they mm -hmm. split the, you know, that's about how credible our situation over there is. Mm -hmm. Except there's people dying over there. That's what makes it well, much, much the worse. Well, that's the sad thing. I know that Our soldiers, civilians, sure, everybody. everybody. Everybody's yeah. getting shot up. Uh, and I know that there's some, there's been some questions recently about some of the things that, well, gosh, I could go for hours on it. Mm -hmm. uh, back to the story. The troops believe that they can learn valuable lessons from the LAPD which has made inroads into communities after highly publicized abuses, from the videotaped beating of Rodney King to corruption in an anti-gang unit. Uh, it's interesting what the police exactly could learn from something like that. Uh, well, uh, moving on. Their role is to win the hearts and minds of the community, and that's what they did, said Marine Staff Sergeant Brendan Flynn, who also works as a Los Angeles police officer and will be deployed to help train Afghan police. The week-long exercise, unbeknownst to the public, involved Marines dressed in jeans and T-shirts, observing drug busts, witnessing prostitution arrests, and even following a murder case. It was the largest group of Marines to embed with the city's officers. Um, now, now, it just occurred to me, wasn't that gentleman in Oklahoma who was an EMT who got attacked by that police officer? Do you remember that, that yeah. case? Yeah. Uh, the uh, the officer who sort of pulled him over and attacked the guy randomly mm -hmm. wasn't he? Uh, he had just gotten back gotten from, back from Iraq as right. a, as a as a marine. Or yeah, they army. said he was having a hard time deprogramming from how he treated people over there. Yeah, that's right. Um, interesting. Over that, there, you could knock people around and abuse them, and yeah. nobody here was watching. But interesting. Well. It's interesting that there seems to be this more and more seamless flow from military to police to military to police. You know, the and latest. You can't is, tell a difference. Yeah, yeah. Which is exactly against what the founding fathers said, because they Shouldn't knew what an incredible yeah, danger that would be. Mm -hmm. uh, our our soldiers are supposed to attack enemies of America. Sure. They're not supposed to attack America. Sure. You can see that. You can see that when police refer to non-police as civilians. Right. Yeah. It's always they're always civilians. It's never we're here to protect the citizens. Like we're here to protect the civilians. Mm -hmm. And know. if you, as as uh, Will Greg says, if you have a government issued costume and yeah. badge, you you are an official. Mm -hmm. Which yep. means you're to do whatever they say, regardless of what the law says. I know. I ran into a little bit of that uh, just recently. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, Abbott. This is a. Um, uh, a a um, a guy. Uh, he's, is he Marine. an abbot, like in a monastery? Yeah, he's an abbot. Okay. He wears wearing the monk's uniform around South Or was he like LA. Bud Abbott with Lou Costello? No. Okay. No. Who's on first? Who's on first? Mm -hmm. uh, he's a Marine lieutenant. Uh, referenced. We've done. We've stopped so many times to talk about this. I mm -hmm. felt uh, uh, Abbott. That is Lieutenant Andrew Abbott. 
Uh, it's a Marine lieutenant. I uh, rode with Sergeant Arno Clare, a 16-year veteran with salt and pepper hair who swims up to a mile a day. During their afternoon together, police handcuffed a bus driver. Moments after he was caught by an undercover officer with $25,000 worth of crack cocaine outside an apartment complex in a south-central Los Angeles neighborhood long plagued by violent gangs. The tattooed suspect wearing an earring and baggy shorts seemed a world away from the ragtag Kalashnikov-toting Taliban fighters, just as the streets of south-central Los Angeles are from the dusty villages of mud-brick houses in Afghanistan. But in many ways, police in Los Angeles crime-ridden neighborhoods use the same skills that Marines say could help them. Marines are in charge of training Afghanistan's army and police, but often have no police experience themselves. Their success in building effective police forces is considered key to stabilizing the country and allowing foreign troops to withdraw. Now, isn't that what military police are for? I mean, that's clearly mm -hmm. their occupation, as I am to understand. Mm -hmm. uh, Marines also are changing their approach, realizing that marching into towns to show force alienates communities. Instead, they are being taught to fan out with interpreters to strike up conversations with truck drivers, money exchangers, cell phone sellers, and others. The rapport building can net valuable information that could even alert troops about potential attacks. Marines can gather intelligence by picking up the notebooks, receipts, and other papers left behind in raids that could provide insight into the opium business that the Taliban, uh, see our earlier mm -hmm. commentary, uh, uses to buy their weapons, Afghan expert Gretchen Peters says. And uh, anyway, it goes on. One thing notable here is think of the Taliban as the Sopranos in Turban, she said. I think essentially they're the, they're the criminals. So that's you know that certainly goes against the grain of of everything that I've read about the street price of opium mm -hmm. under the Taliban. Um, Afghanistan supplies 90% of the world's opium, the main ingredient of heroin, and is also the leading global supplier of hashish. Last year, opium seizures soared 924% because of better cooperation between Afghan and international forces. Um, now the whole it's it's funny they spin it like that because it's like a field, you know. How hard is it to to hide a field? Answer: It's pretty impossible. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, all you'd have to do is spray defoliant on it. Mm -hmm. So to if you really want to get rid of it. Yeah. So to say that, you know, some somehow like we're now detecting this problem, we have to be like drug busters or something mm -hmm. is, is ridiculous. So really, I just wanted to I just wanted to show that this story was like nuts. You know, well, I think with, you've accomplished your mission. Well, I've shown that somebody was nuts, but it might have been me. You know, people used to get back from Vietnam, and that's sort of that, like, what's this all about? Mm -hmm. why, why is this going on? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Mm -hmm. they, leave, they come back here more confused than ever on mm -hmm. what that experience was. It seems like that's sort of what some people are having sure. coming back from these I had a, um I had a particularly... But by the way, Afghanistan war has surpassed the Vietnam War. Sure, length. it's the longest military... It's the longest war ever, I think, now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had it particularly, along those lines, I had a particularly enlightening conversation uh, with a a, um, a very, at the time, well-to-do film producer back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, when I met him, it was the 90s. Um, but we had, a, we had a long conversation about, about uh, drugs and drug trafficking, of all things, uh, of which I guess, according to him, he was very much of a, very much a part, I guess. Mm. And... Uh, um, he he had much the same sort of commentary about the Vietnam War that uh, I had about the Afghanistan War here, and so it makes me wonder if this isn't a play that, at least in part, hasn't been played before. You know, I mean, the Golden Triangle there in, in Vietnam is another place where mm -hmm. 
heroin and opium are very... People making money from drugs, people making money from selling weapons. Mm -hmm. Revelation 18, the kings of the earth and the great merchants of the earth commit their sorcery, and by this they deceive the nations of the earth. Indeed. And a lot of times their biggest dupes, I'm afraid to say, are evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. Well, they're my too busy brothers spend, spending a million five on their door. Well, my brothers and sisters here in the Lord, of which I have done a major part of that in my past. Well, I in mean, supporting that. Sure, but and even... I confess that before you and our listeners. You and both of our listeners. <laughs> both. Hopefully we have a few more, at least judging from the emails we get. And yeah. Uh, the hits on futurequake.com. Mm -hmm. if, if you listen on iTunes and you don't check out the website, you need to come to futurequake.com. We have other announcements there. Mm -hmm. Also, we have it, uh, almost double the amount of shows at futurequake.com in our past shows tab, our archive, mm -hmm. that you cannot find at iTunes. We only have our WNO era mm -hmm. shows on iTunes. So you'll, you'll find virtually double the number of shows there. Mm -hmm. There are early days, a little rough around the edges, even more than now, believe it or not. Yeah. But uh, we highly recommend it to people. Somebody else we recommend is Merv, mm -hmm. who can tell you how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, that's the end of another week. Gosh, I'm sorry. I took up the whole time. No, that's okay. Well, I sort of did a lot of that yesterday, yeah. so... That's okay. Just had a few little small stories here. We may be looking at a week of news one day. Although I got some emails, people really enjoy our interviews. Mm -hmm. It's just sometimes really exhausting to prepare week in, week out those interviews. So well, and I think people bear with us if yeah. you if we get a break every once in a while. I think and people like like the other stuff too, like the like the news. Well, hopefully like us. Yeah. Well, if you do, come back Monday for our next Future Quake show. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake.